starring the mad prophet of the airways, Howard Beale. Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining us always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Good as hell, Darren. How are you? I'm good as hell, and I am totally <laughs> going to take it for about two hours or so uh, as we go. We have two fantastic guests joining us in a joke that I just used a moment ago, but I'm going to use it again anyway. We've got the Sunday team joining us on a Saturday. First of all, the fantastic Kira Maloney. How are you, Kira? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm... <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Sorry, I should have prepared something. No, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, thumbs up. I mean, How could you have talked that, though? It's an excellent, yeah. excellent joke. <laughs> Um, but yes, I mean, look, our, our, you know, our studies show that audiences right now, they're, they're very receptive to spontaneity and goodness. Um, they're so excited about all these great things that are happening in the world. <laughs> and our second guest, the fantastic Dean Buckley. How are you, Dean? I'm great. Uh, that was the weirdest segue I've ever had to introduce me in any context, I would say. How often do you get introduced, Dean? Uh, by by you, who who often uh, tries to introduce me in funny ways, but that was uh... you exclusively introduce yourself. Stop lying. You say that's Dean, true, actually, here, Dan. Here's here's a man who needs some introduction, <laughs> Dean Buckley. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yes, so we are talking about the 1976 movie Network, directed by Sidney Lumet, but by Paddy Chayofsky, uh, mm-hmm. which is an interesting credit, which we'll talk about maybe a little bit later on. But the reason that both of you are on uh, is because when I reached out to both of you earlier in the year about talking about a particular movie, you both got back to me independently with Network kind of on your list. So um, I want to ask both of you individually, why... Why network? What is it about network that makes the movie that you want to talk about? So, Kira, if you want to go first, what is it about network that was like when I said, "Here's a list of the 100 movies we haven't covered yet." You were like, "Network." Is that's it already 100? <laughs> I know. No, we're at we're at we're at we're at 66 percent. Yeah, we're. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, it, it, the end is in sight, Andrew. We might, the, we might actually finish this. Sorry, Kira, who is the person <laughs> who should be talking. Now? Um, network is a film that's really easy to talk about <laughs> not a lot going on you know it's uh it's definitely a film that like i watched it a couple of days i mean i watched it like many years ago but i watched it a couple of days ago into because i'm very prepared and um and i got and i was and i just kept thinking about it i was like there's a lot there's a lot, lot to lot to think about there so i was like that'd be a good podcast episode and do you remember the first time that you saw Network? Like, so when uh, did you first? I've no it? like particular memory of when I first saw it, but it was probably in college, uh, almost certainly in college. Uh yeah, and I, and I was like, oh, this this rules. I, I have a much clearer memory of when Dean first watched it because he watched it back to back with Twelve Angry Men, despite having no idea they were directed by the same person. <laughs> And yeah, I found that very amusing. Oh, okay, <laughs> That's true. that is that is a hell of a segue. So, Dean, we'll maybe focus on that story first, and then ask why you emailed back and said network when it was presented with the option. But yeah, tell me about watching kind of two slices of Sydney Lumet. Well, I had that wasn't the first time I watched Twelve Angry Men. I had been shown it in school, but I wasn't aware that uh, the two. I I didn't. There was no big plan. It just sort of happened that way. I, I, me and Kira were living together at the time. She told me to watch Network, so I did. 
she sold it to me, so I uh, I watched it. Yeah, just coincidentally with another. The Man People say she can sell anything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, but so when when I asked you like of the films that we've yet to cover, what would you like to cover? And you said network. What's what was your reason, Dean? I mean, in some ways, the exact same answer that you gave. <laughs> but in in fairness, there's also I I. I specifically have a lot of interest in stuff like mass media and conspiracism and and stuff that uh, network da, is. Da, uh, da... <laughs> Sorry, Dean's a big Q guy. <laughs> Dean is I, Q. Can we break Star that on Trek the podcast? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. John Delancey. I've been Q this entire time. Yeah. <laughs> I, of course, what I mean is that. He finds the Q phenomenon interesting. Yeah, he, and he d- he is not a, a supporter of it. I yeah, I, I'm I was interested I, in in conspiracism. I am not a conspiracist. And here I was thinking that you were John Delancey from Star Trek. Um, but yeah, okay. So what about yourself, Andrew? Like, how I do got you their s- first? Step. <laughs> how, yeah, how do you feel about Q anon? Which I feel is the direction this conversation. <laughs> is um, but but in terms Me, of nice, I actually so, have an answer to this question. In terms, I, it's, I'm hoping it's the question: When did you first watch Network? As yes, opposed, to, okay, it is, yes, it is. Answer that question, <laughs> which I rarely do. It was 2006. I, w- I was in London. I was living with my friend Katie, and she had like a whole lot of kind of, um, uh, I'm I guess videos, but maybe DVDs. But yeah, we 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 watched um, uh, Network. All right, and. It was this thing where I was, I, I think I felt like I was expected to already know it a little bit. <laughs> not, not like in an obnoxious way, but it's like, oh, um, network, you've probably seen it. So it's like, oh, naturally. <laughs> Let's watch it again. Yeah. <laughs> I love it so much that I, I can't talk about it specifically unless I watch it again. I'm so in love with it. So long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, okay. So you, you did see it in 2006. Um do you have any again good... while in college? Uh, and Perhaps again, the perfect time to watch this. Yes. Well, I mean, yes. <laughs> Network is is an interesting movie to talk about in terms of the two fifty, in large part because it's a movie where its popularity seems to have ebbed and flowed. It's a movie where people seem to love it and or hate it depending on the mood of the time. You look at say its initial release, and it generates this very strong reaction against it, which we'll probably talk about. Some of that reaction is from people who work in television who understandably are maybe like, this is not the best movie ever, but it does generate a bit of backlash in the New York press where you have people like, for example, is it Frank Rich in the New York Post describing it as kind of vacuous and empty? You have like Pauline Pauline Kael hated it. Yes, she literally ran a review called under the headline Hot Air. And then like a couple of pages later in that edition of The New Yorker, they let the TV critic have a go at it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but then it kind of circles back around. It ends up being like one of the most nominated movies. I'm sorry the- about children screaming outside. I'm sorry. As long as it's outside, that's fine. Okay. Um, we don't have to ask any further questions. Uh, <laughs> but but the, uh, the, the it kind of circles back around. It ends up becoming like one of the most nominated pictures at the 1977 Academy Awards. It ties for the most wins at that ceremony with all the president's men which is an absolutely fascinating snapshot of the late 70s in terms of competing portrayals of journalism. Both movies go home with four statues apiece, which is absolutely fascinating. 
three of those statues for network are for performances, which is absolutely remarkable. And it takes up home the screenplay Oscar as well, which I believe is uh, Chayefsky's third award after Marty uh, and after The Hospital from 1972. Probably deserve it. Do we, do, do we play the game where, where, okay, okay. where, where we guess the... Um... Andrew Andrew feels like games make the podcast more exciting. All right, so we're, we're going to spin. We're going we're gonna to have a rotation here. All right, so... Ten nominations for this movie. Five nominations for acting. It is, I believe, to date the last time that a movie has had five acting nominations. It is after A Streetcar Named Desire, the second and last time that it has had three acting category wins. So, okay, I'm going to go to Dean first. Can you give me an actor who won or was nominated for their work in this movie? Oh, um, I mean, Peter Finch definitely... Yes. Posthumously won. The first actor to win an award posthumously, one of only two to date behind Heath Ledger. Uh, the Chadwick Boseman incident is still scarred in our brains uh, from <laughs> earlier last year. Oh, oh yes, that's when you were, you're counting on a posthumous win, but it just won't materialize. Kira, can you give me a second of either of the three winners or the five nominees? Uh, I gotta assume Faye Dunaway. Yes, she won the Best Actress category. She's considered a frontrunner. Not a surprise victory there. So that's two of the three winners right there. Andrew, can you give me the third winner to make this a contentious and uh, competitive game? I feel like um, I can name like a third and fourth nominee. Oh, okay. I'm I'm wondering what it would... But I'm not going to do that, obviously. Okay. I'm just deciding which one I'm going to say. (laughs) And I think I'm going to go with uh, William Holden. And I'm going to be very annoyed um, if if it's the other person I'm thinking of. Is William he, Holden is nominated was nominated in the lead actor category opposite Peter Finch, which is, I think, a fair miss. I don't think Holden held any grudges about losing <laughs> that award. So, so that's a pass. So we're down to two. We've got one nominee and one winner left. So, Dean, do you know who the third winner was or do you know who the other nominee was, the fifth nominee? I know which performer was the winner, but I do not know her name, which I feel like means I have to bat it to, to Kira. All right. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Um, uh, I'd... Uh, no, no pressure here, Kira. Uh, <laughs> uh, was Robert Duvall nominated? Can I switch to nominations? Robert Duell was not nominated. Oh, I was going to go with... That was the one okay, I so was, got was between. Two in the air there. So we've got one nominee and one winner. All right. And I, I feel like both of these people, one of these people is maybe insulted that you didn't remember them. The other person, the other person did press when she, when they got nominated and said it would be an obscenity if I won, uh, which is great. You always love it when they get that kind of like when they give that speech on a nomination. OK, so back to Dean, then. Can you name the nominee then? Let's take a swing on nominee if you if you don't know, who, if you can't name the Ned, winner. Ned Beatty? Yes! Okay. Ned Beatty was nominated for supporting actor. He was the, own, the only category, the only acting category the movie didn't win. He lost that to Jason Robards in All the President's Men. Okay, and so, Kira, back to you. You figured out by process of elimination what the category that it won in was, I hope, which is Best Supporting Actress. Supporting Actress. Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Very good. Yes, that is fair. Sir, there are there are no small actresses. <laughs> <laughs> no, She's there's done... no small parts. Whatever <laughs> you know. One of those things. One, one or the other. Um, 
I have no idea. I have no idea whatsoever. Dude, process of elimination. How many female parts are there in this movie? Not many. <laughs> I, Can we name the I know which part it is. I just what, don't what part is it? It's <laughs> William <laughs> Holden's wife. Oh, yeah, she won an Oscar. <laughs> Louise. Yes, Louise, played by Beatrice Strait. A little bit of Oscar trivia there. The shortest performance ever to win a performance Oscar. She's only on shorter than than. Then Shakespeare in Love? Yeah, then Judy Dent. She's only on screen wow. for five minutes and 40 seconds in total. I feel That's... like she was given more than... Like, in, in a material of, to play. Like, in, yeah, in spite of being, you know, the the wife, I feel like she, she has a good um, kind of rant there. Yeah, no, she has good material. Do we want to take a look at who the other uh, nominees were in that category? Who she beat for this? Right. Sure. Okay. So she beat Jane Alexander and Lee Grant from like all the President's Men and Voyage of the Dam. Those are the two who were never going to win, but she beat the two front runners in the category. One of them is Piper Laurie um, as Margaret White in Kerry, who was seen as a potential favorite, but she beat the actual favorite in 1977, Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver as Iris. Oh, That's wow. who she beat. Wow. This is quite astounding. <laughs> It's been speculated that... I feel like she won that. You know, like yeah. Jodie Foster won that. Does Jodie Fo- How many Oscars does Jodie Foster have? Two? I do not know. We've got to go to the fact machine and check that. I think, that. Silence, I think Silence of the Lambs and the Accused. That, that... Having those two on the table and then choosing um, Judith, uh, Beatrice Strait is, feels very much like... Uh, somebody caught between two different kinds of perversion they don't want to have to take ownership of within themselves <laughs> and going, I'm going to vote for the normal choice. <laughs> yeah, well, that is that is generally the reading of that win, is that, yeah, the Academy did not want to give the Oscar to the child prostitute. Um, so it was like, okay, we'll give it to the wife who has the big speech in, in network. But yes, yeah, so those are the three winners and the five nominees in the category, which is quite a bit of success. And again, like the film has been up and down over the years. Um, on the 250, it was in in 98. It dropped out in 2000. It came back in in 2014. It kind of crested up about 2016. I wonder what happened in 2016 that may have caused it <laughs> to start sloping downwards again, as if there were a negative reaction to everything that this movie represents. It's now on a bit of a downward crest of a wave, about 206 on the IMDb 250. Um, so yes, it is a movie that kind of very much, as Andrew said, kind of comes and goes uh, in waves. I feel like you're referring to a specific thing that happened in 2016, but there's a number of things. Um, <laughs> I think 2016 just happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was weird that in 2016, everyone was like, God damn it! 2016, I can't wait till this year's over. And then it was just, but it was, it was all set up. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. a proper, so, like, they had like a six season and a movie plan. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is where we find ourselves at the moment. 2023 is going to be the big one. Um, All right. So before we talk about network in a bit more depth, three questions just to get us started before we jump into the spoiler zone. So, Dean, do you think that network from 1976 belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Definitely. Yeah. 100%. Would you care to expand on that? (laughs) (laughs) Let me just have a sip of this drink. (laughs) <laughs> he he appears to be drinking from a sifter. I'm so croaky. Uh, no, it's iced tea. He's swirling it in his glass sure. as he considers his option. Um, I think it's uh, exactly that kind of arc of uh, re- constant reaction to network that 
really demonstrates so much of why it is one of the greatest films ever made is because it 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 always feels like it's in conversation with everything that's happening around it no matter how much like you know when it came out it it feels like it's foreseeing the yuppies and is like really really scared mm-hmm, of them mm-hmm. <laughs> and then <laughs> You come along to, you know, the 80s and 90s, you've got the 24-hour cable news era, you've got, like, the post-9-11 propaganda machine, you've got, you know... Reality television. Reality television, it just feels like it's always in, uh, it's it's timeless and also, (laughs) but in a way that's very prickly and constantly, like, rubbing up against reality in uncomfortable ways. Oh, like, like, again, doing research for this podcast was an interesting experience because, as Dean said, like, I would run into historical articles every, like, four years or so. And it would be kind of like, has network happened yet? It has finally <laughs> happened. Uh, it's like we finally reached peak network. So, like, in 1990, you have, like, oh, my God, the, this is, like, the fourth network has emerged. It's Fox. They're airing, like, shocky reality television, like, cops. They're putting stuff like The Simpsons and Married and with Children on the air. They're denigrating what television is as an art form. We are finally living in the dystopian future that network predicted. And then you jump forward to 2001. It's like, well, you see, back in 1990, we thought that it was just a dystopian prediction of the future. But now we're living in a world where the fourth network is the most watched network on television because it's producing American Idol. And now we have reached peak (laughs) network. And then you reach like 2014. And all of a sudden it's like George Clooney's like... I want to produce a live, like, television broadcast play version of Network, like I did with Sidney Lumet's Failsafe, which I hardly recommend seeking out if listeners want to see something that kind of is a nice throwback. Except, oh no, I turned on the television and it turns out we are living in peak Network. People will not realize that the, the movie that we are producing live is a satire. It will instead seem like it's just a straight drama. I had to scrap the idea, says George Clooney. Then you jump forward to 20, at 16, and then you jump forward to 2018, and then you jump forward to 2020, 21, 22, and there are all these articles that are like, yeah, no, we're, we're living in the network world. But and it, it, it's also that, like everything is get, get, uh, getting more crass. I think yeah. it, 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 the Parker and Stone who did South Park, they, they said like when they made the movie, they decided like, let's put a whole load of stuff that we can't do in the show. And put it in this movie. And they say like. We didn't realize. Like we probably could have just put that stuff in the show. Like we could certainly do that now. In fact. Like it, some of the stuff would be kind of mild. Compared to what they uh, now get away with on um, television. Like on. Is Comedy Central National? Yeah. It's, it's a cable. It's a, ca- it's a, it's a boutique. It's a cable show. Uh, like, I mean, again, like they brought in the guy. Again, speaking of the network element of it all, like the not to get into too much of the plot, but like Diane being brought in and being given control of the news network. You had like people like Doug Herzog, who managed Comedy Central in the late 90s and was like the guy responsible for things like the real world and all that sort of stuff, or things like Comedy Central, where he worked on like South Park and the Jon Stewart show, The Daily Show. And he's brought into Fox well, and he starts... MTV, no? Sorry? Real World oh, sorry, yes, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. World MTV. But he's he's responsible for like he's responsible for the Daily Show with John Stewart, he's responsible for South Park, and he comes to Fox and he runs Fox, and all of a sudden you have this moral panic of like 
this is the man responsible for Shasta McNasty. What has he done to the art form of television? Um, and you have what is famously known as one of the worst seasons in broadcast television history, where people are like shaking their heads, their fists at the sky going, what is this Malcolm in the middle of which you speak? And why, why is this what sitcoms look like now? So I think, yeah, I think like there, there is that point where it is always prescient, always timely and like never, never out of date. Again, like it's worth noting that this had a big revival on, um, on the West End in the UK and then moved over to Broadway where they did a stage show of this with Brian Cranston in it in, I think, 2018. And again, it, it worked, apparently garnered rave reviews. It won a bunch of Tonys. It won Cranston a Tony for his performance as well. So yeah, it's a it's a show or a, a movie that continues to be quite timely. To Andrew's point about like putting stuff in a movie that you couldn't put on television, uh, when Chayesky was asked if he would change anything about this movie several years after it came out, his response was, yeah, people in television don't swear that much. That'd be the one. That'd be the one change I'd make. I'd maybe take out some of the cuss words. Everything else is fine. But Kira, do you think that Network belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Uh, I feel like I should be upfront at this point that I have no real idea how big a small a number 250 is. <laughs> um, but in an effort to clarify that for myself and give you the most accurate possible answer, I tried to make a list and I, 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 got, I got as far as having a long list of 403 films and a ranked top 15, but then I had to take stress leave from the whole endeavor because <laughs> I was going to have a nervous breakdown and I was like, this is not worth it. Um, it's totally this, is, this is like it, the it least been, it worth been... it thing imaginable. It would have been great uh, podcasting. It would have got us a 40 share. The audiences <laughs> respond. But, Who are we uh, to say that Kira's having a nervous breakdown, that she's not just speaking through the list? Sorry, Kira. Uh, but based on my progress on, you know, de and developing a tier system and so forth, I'm fairly confident that Network would be somewhere between about 140th and 180th. That's impressive. I like that. Like that, you actually gave the answer proper thought and stuff. What do, is it like a hierarchy? Is it like a league like table or silver? Silver tier, like uh, sorry, S S tier, A B C. Um. I, it's I can't get into it. It's not, it's <laughs> we're re, we're re-traumatizing. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Listeners can't see, but Kira has a big board behind her with four hundred seated entries on it, and has gotten two levels into it. Four hundred and three. Four hundred and three. <laughs> and has gotten three levels into it. All right, cool. And and what what is it about it that you think makes it deserving of a place on the two hundred and fifty greatest movies ever made? Um, it's it's got that one scene where a uh, like <laughs> radical black power group are haggling over syndication rights <laughs> <laughs> with Lance Henriksen, baby, Lance Henriksen. Yeah, this is what. <laughs> I know that I love that that's what I took from that scene. But anyway, sorry, Kira. <laughs> that's it. That, that's my answer. <laughs> oh, oh, all right. All right. Uh, this is going to be a great podcast. I've just got a great feeling about this. Andrew, <laughs> with as much or as little, um, you know, elaboration as you like, do you think that Network belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yeah, I do. Um, I think it's um, like Sybil, the kind of soothsayer. In terms of being uh, <laughs> prescient um, and ready for prime time, um, is it also Matahari and her secrets when it comes to what goes on behind the production? Um, I want, yeah, I want to know more about those um, segments. Yeah, yeah. One of the so, segments is just a vox pop. 
a vox pop. Yeah, but it's, pre- vo- it's, vox it's presented as if it's as bad as the other stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, they even like, say later that the vox pop has its own dedicated audience. Like, like it has a fandom. <laughs> what the hell? It's the machine. The machine has a fandom. <laughs> Unfortunately, we discovered some some stuff in that machine's search history in the late '80s. Uh, it's been count- it is staging a comeback on Bravo though. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Like no, it- I, I I do think it deserves to be on on the um, top uh, two fifty. I don't think there are enough stories there about um, crusty but benign. Yeah, um, and the the performances are um, uh, terrific. It's it's tremendously um, satirical, and yeah, it feel it feels like it belongs in nineteen seventy six, but also that it it, it it's it stays with us and continues to be relevant. So it it manages to kind of function like in those two spaces, two ways, kind of like timely and timeless. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's a time and space are just illusions, Andrew, <laughs> uh, really, when you get down to it. But no, like, I think it, I think it is worth stressing. This is a movie that is very firmly rooted in its time and place, and large part of that is down to Paddy Chayefsky, the writer, who worked in television. Um, he, like, garnered, like, a great deal of attention for writing Marty, which was one of the seminal moments, arguably, in terms of television drama. It got turned into a feature film. They went from, I think, Rod Steiger on the television show got turned into Ernest Borgnine in the film, uh, which is one of those great Hollywoodization kind of like, I believe they call it a yassification. I love that yassification <laughs> Rod Steiger gives I, you I believe Borgnine. Rod Steiger turned the role down. Ah. But uh, yeah, they went with her. They, oh, okay. Well, they went with Ernest Borgnine anyway. But yes, so he he kind of began in television. He had a tumultuous relationship with television, but he still remained in contact with them. And he pitched several shows. I believe this has its roots in a show that he pitched called The Imposters. Um, and I believe that's where the term UBS, the fictional fourth network, kind of comes from. And it was going to be a show. It was inspired by lunch that he had with Mel Brooks, where he was <laughs> like, they were talking about how much they hated television and how much people who hated television, how much people who made television were idiots. And Mel Brooks was like, I, I, well, I'm going to prove this to you right now. And he goes over to a phone booth and he goes over and he convinces them that he is the ghost of Bertrand Brecht. And he wants to commission a TV show based on Three Penny Opera. And he manages to get several meetings with several of the television networks off the back of this despite the fact that Bertrand Breck has been dead for at that stage quite a long time um, if, and that- if that story is true that is very rude of Mel Brooks to say about his best friend Carl Reiner creator of the Dick Van Dyke show <laughs> But yes, yeah, but like, like he didn't didn't um, he work on like the show of shows and stuff like that. He as did. Well? That's yeah. that's what the Dick Van Dyke show's about. <laughs> I, I I guess he says that from a point of like kind of experience or authority. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Paddy Chayefsky was very much you know that kind of Playhouse ninety generation of TV writers with my beloved Rod Serling and. Uh, of Twilight Zone fame and they would write these like plays for television and uh and then it all went God damn it Yes, which is basically what, what this what this movie is about. It it feels in some ways like a death rattle of like a generation like Lummet. Lummet came up with television as well. We mentioned like things like say Twelve Angry Men was a leap from television and Lummet was very fond of saying I didn't leave television. I feel like television left me behind. Um <laughs> 
And he, like, he came back to television, I believe, 2000, 2001, when he felt the medium finally caught up to him. But the idea was, yeah, this is to a certain extent people who had worked in television being very angry about what they saw as the state of television at that moment in time, in case that doesn't come across from the movie that you have just watched. Um, but like, yeah, it's very firmly rooted in 1975. Like things like the news stories they cover are actual news stories. So yeah. The Patty Hearst story is like chronologically correct. That's September 1975. Without a mention of Gerald Ford. Yeah, the, the CIA Humphreys mail opening scandal. The very first story is the uh, attempted assassinations of uh, Gerald Ford by Sarah Jane Moore and... Uh, Susan Atkins from the Man. One one was just a, a load of the other from the Manson family. Well, yeah, it was uh, Squeaky. What's her name? Um, uh, from oh yeah, from, it wasn't from it from Man. not Susie Atkins? Sorry, you're right. Uh, uh, squeaky. It was Squeaky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, and that's Squeaky from. That's yeah, right. I mix up with Susan Atkins. I I mean to be fair, we are arguing over Manson family members. I think at this point. Uh, I like that it starts with a news broadcast because it's the obligatory Robocop reference. It's good when that happens. Early on, so Andrew can enjoy the rest of the movie. (laughs) He just has to keep an eye out for smoking. But sorry, Kira, were you going to say something there? Oh, I was going to say the most important thing that situates it in the year is when the Howard Beale show is fourth in the ratings to the million dollar man all in the family and Phyllis. (laughs) That got a big laugh for me for, for no reason. <laughs> I don't know, just just the inclusion of Phyllis. I don't it, is, know. It, is, it is exactly Phyllis that is the, <laughs> is the, yeah. that's the, that's the punchline. Because yeah. earlier they were like, we're going to beat Mary Tyler Moore, and then they're not beating Phyllis. It's just... Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, yeah, the narration in this is very good. Yeah. Because mo- movies kind of can suffer from narration but I, I i think this is like judicious and effective narration this is something i guess this is maybe a question for the spoiler zone there is something to be said about the script and the way that's written and chayefsky as a writer in particular as kira mentioned kind of like of that early generation of playhouse for television writers where television was seen as initially sid as an extension caesar, of theater isn't it what? um sid caesar would the kind of show shows your show shows were, yeah where we were talking about mel brooks and carl Reiner. Yeah. Right. But like early on, television was seen as an extension of theatre where it was seen as being something kind of live and theatrical and all that sort of stuff. And then as it went on, it became more, arguably more commercialised, but arguably more in terms of the language of cinema. It's kind of moved away from that. And is there an argument about Network being a very theatrical screenplay? It being a movie that is like, say, 12 Angry Men to pick the uh, the twofer that Dean went for there. Uh <laughs> Because when we had, I think we had Donald Clark on John McGuire talking about 12 Angry Men, one of the big arguments we had was that this is arguably more of a stage play than it is as a movie. Incorrect. <laughs> Incorrect, absolutely, 100%. I think I, I I was the kind of witness for the prosecution there. But I I, I, I thought it was insane that it didn't exist as, as a play. <laughs> like prior to being a movie, I was like, what? This wasn't based on a play? They didn't just have a hit play that they put a camera in front of? <laughs> um, um, so yes, Andrew is the, the prosecutor in that particular case. Yeah. <laughs> but is... <laughs> Are you? Do you swear, Mr. Aguirre, that you have never seen a stage play version of 12 Angry Men? Don't wait for the translation. Answer it now. Um, but Dean and Kira, is there something about that in terms of this as a very wordy, very kind of writer-driven project? Notably, as we said, it is networked by Paddy Chayefsky. The director credit goes to Sidney Lumet at the end, but it is very much considered a Chayefsky kind of film. 
And a lot of the thing that uh, the actors have noted in working it is that you get several pages of monologue and dialogue. There are characters who pop up for a single scene. And I were talking about like they got eight pages of script they had to memorize that was just uninterrupted dialogue. <laughs> is there something stagey about this? Is this is there an argument that this is kind of a stagey production in terms of uh, cinema or in terms of or is that a distinction worth making, Kira or Dean? Um, no, it's not stagey at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um it is like, anything tv i would say uh the only thing like kind of theatrical about it is that people give long speeches but people in movies used to give long speeches all the time um people in, people in podcasts give really long speeches yes i'm sorry yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think long speeches are the exclusive domain of theater like darren for first for somebody to say, like, I don't think this is realistic when that guy talks for, like, five minutes without stopping. <laughs> I, I will accept that. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's just that they're talented, you know? Like, <laughs> like, 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 like you. <laughs> anyway, um, ignoring my, my Howard Bill. But, but, like, it, compared to, like, 12 Angry Men, which isn't stagey either, but it, it, it at least occurs all in one location. But Network has, like, a million locations and characters that show up like and then i don't i don't know it's got it's got like like giant rotating things where <laughs> somebody's doing a like a thing it's 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 no it's I a did, movie but and it's got it, a narrator if your play has a narrator your play sucks but if your movie has a narrator your movie's awesome yeah um, Kira doesn't make the rules; she just enforces them. Um, <laughs> I, by the way, like not to spoil the movie, but like it's great. I watched this movie with Andrew. Andrew and I are recording in the same physical space again. It's it's interesting. But like watching the movie with Andrew, it's a joy sometimes to observe his reactions kind of firsthand. And there's a moment <laughs> where, as Kira said, there's a moment where characters are on like a spinny kind of dial kind of thing, and like there's a wide shot, and you can see the people kind of turning it frantically yes! at the bottom. And I, I don't think I've ever felt as like heartened and warmed in my soul as when Andrew chuckled heartily at that image. I don't think it was the biggest laugh the movie got out of Andrew, but it was a moment where it's like... It's got a awesome. lot of laughs, yeah. by the way. Yeah. A, I, I don't know if we've mentioned, kind of like we've said, it's satirical. Yeah. Um, it's very funny, like laugh out loud funny. But it is not, according to Paddy Chayefsky, a black comedy. That was apparently the one note that he had for the marketing team. He was like, don't call it a black comedy. Nobody wants to see a black comedy. It's a comedy <laughs> or it's a drama. Pick a lane and sell it either of those ways. Um, and for myself, I think, yes, this belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies. To circle back around to a question I asked what feels like an a half an hour ago. <laughs> um, I, th I think it is. I think as for all the reasons outlined, it is incredibly prescient. It's very timely, but also timeless. It's a movie that gets increasingly relevant as time goes on. Uh, it's also just nice to have a movie that is is like, again, this wordy this thoughtful this insightful and this profound on the 250 um there's a lot of the 250 is a list that is is very populous and i think this is a populous movie there's a reason why i'm mad as hell or i'm as mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore has entered take this uh, anymore take this slash out. this <laughs> i yeah i i was paying it I, I i was thinking because in my head it's like i don't know if it's this or it and in the movie they say both well, in the in the movie, the line is in the script. The line is, "I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore." But Finch fubbed and added, a, "I'm as mad as hell," 
and I'm not going to take this anymore. And Chayefsky, who was incredibly particular about the dialogue used. In fact, I think that like when they were interviewing actors, they were very clear. You do not get to pick the dialogue. You don't get to have any feedback on the dialogue. You will read the dialogue as it's written. But apparently because that scene with Finch was filmed one and a half times. Because it was live. The George Clooney. Yeah, which George Clooney. But like apparently... them. But apparently, like, Finch actually fainted during the second take. Like, they didn't know about his heart condition at the time. But he literally stopped midway through the second take and was like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't God, finish that this. That makes me like the movie less. <laughs> <laughs> I find out that there's, like, a meta kind of um, aspect of, like, the real-life treatment of Beale slash Finch. Okay, to well, be clear, you know. to be clear, as soon as Finch said, I can't do it again, Lummet was like, that's fine. We got what we need. We're not going to ask you to do it again. As opposed to you're going to do it five nights a week for the foreseeable future, as long as our stakeholders demand. Um, <laughs> but uh, re- Regarding Peter Finch, I have some information about Peter Finch's stepfather, as told to me by my father, um, which is, did you know that Peter Finch's dad was almost the first person to climb Mount Everest. No. And if you would like to know more, my dad has provided a prepared statement on the matter, which oh. I can <laughs> read for you now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, 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 think we, I think we can't not hear that statement. <laughs> George Finch, who was born in Australia, but was later a researcher in Imperial College London, was chosen for the 1922 Mount Everest expedition. It was said that he was not a popular choice because he was the only Australian in an all-British group, and unlike expedition leader George Mallory, was not a Cambridge man. The expedition ended in disaster due to an avalanche where eight Sherpas were killed. In 1924, the Mount Everest committee decided to launch another expedition. Most of the previous climbers were selected to go, but Finch was not. In Jeffrey Archer's book, Paths of Glory, Mallory says that he would not go without Finch, but he was outmaneuvered by the committee and had to go without him. So, Mallory and Sandy Irvine were the final two climbers, very near the top of Mount Everest. But they never returned to Camp 6. Did they reach the top? And were they the first to counter Mount Everest? If it had been Mallory and Finch, would things have been different? Finch quit climbing in 1931 and became a professor at Imperial College London. He died in 1970. His obituary in the Times described him as one of the two best alpinists of all time, along with George Mallory. Your father should just write seven-minute monologues for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But that is, is, wow, that is an amazing kind of story. Another, I have another Peter Finch story that may interest Andrew in particular. Because I know that Andrew is... worry when you say that. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes the reason why I might be interested doesn't necessarily reflect well on my character. (laughs) But you are always interested. That's the catch. Um, You're a big Laurence Olivier fan, right? Yeah. Okay, there we go. We have that area of interest there. That's that's fine. Andrew, Andrew used to talk about how, like, when he was a kid, the only movie that he really loved was Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. Because... Well, that's not. Well, sorry, yeah. You can, you can embellish if you like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when Andrew talks about, like, how other kids love Star Wars, he's like, well, I had Laurence Olivier's Hamlet in my household. That's, sure. That's not an embellishment. That's an actual discussion that we had. Um, but anyway, so... 
Um, apparently, Peter Finch was working as a glassblower and working in an amateur theater and company and stuff like that. He wasn't really a professional actor, but he, he happened to break out when Laurence Olivier was taking a tour of a glassblowing factory and paused <laughs> to go um, at lunchtime for a player's performance um, of, of a stage play in which Peter Finch was performing like as an amateur. And he noticed Finch and he kind of said, OK, Peter, you should be an actor. Come back with me. Uh, to London, we'll train you up, we'll, and I'll support and encourage you throughout your kind of life and career. And over time, Finch became very close to Laurence Olivier and his wife Vivian, um, and apparently had an affair with Vivian Lee, um, who was married to Laurence Olivier at the time, um, who was his closest friend and mentor. So that is. Did he ever story. have an affair with Laurence Olivier? Did not Fear that I'm aware of. That get into the real. Well, it was his ward. <laughs> So, like, that was the original idea, but it never transpired. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, it is worth noting that, again, uh, Laurence Olivier lost an Oscar in 1973. Um, sorry, 1977, sorry. Um, so, not, but not to network, crucially. So, it isn't that that embarrassing. He lost the supporting actor category. Was this, was this like, uh, treacherous, um, heartbreaking infidelity, or was it, like, breezy 1970s infidelity? It was... It was <laughs> <laughs> at the end of it did Vivian Lee kind of pack her bags and go back to Laurence Olivier saying that that's what the script demands while uh, <laughs> while Peter Finch rants about not getting a 30 share um, alright so, so Dean would and this is a nice segue would Network be on your own personal 250 your own 250 favourite movies of all time if you were to compile such a list yeah absolutely as well as uh, all the ways that is interesting it is extremely funny and well acted and cleverly shot and is just like i can understand why people might be annoyed by its point of view but if that if that motivates you to denigrate its filmmaking in any way then you're a fool all right. We should actually note in terms of its filmmaking as well, because we did have that discussion about it being theatrical, <laughs> that Lumet kind of decided that what he wanted to do with shooting the film was he wanted the film to start out looking like um, classic television and then have it look like modern television as it got on. So if you're watching the movie, you'll notice that the introductory sequence is a lot like 50s television. It actually looks quite a bit like, say, uh, 12 Angry Men, right down to having that conversation at the table over the title sequence as well. But as the film progresses, the camera angles become more adventurous and more sensational the framing according to Tullamud himself becomes more ambitious and more interesting the camera starts moving a lot more freely as well say for example the boardroom scene with Ned Beatty where Beatty kind of tracks from one end of the table down to the other um, so yeah so yeah it's it, just in terms of recognising its filmmaking and Kira would this be on your own personal 250 your own 250 favourite movies do you have a separate like league yeah, table you, for that no yeah you know like 150 second or whatever <laughs> All right, I like that you narrowed it down. We took the time to narrow that down. Um, all right, and Andrew, would it be on your own personal 250, your own 250 favourite movies? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I feel like that it's it's kind of in um, my... Um, if, I, if, 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 if I could fault it... I mean, I, I, this may be just me personally, but that's like what we're talking about, that it didn't yeah. have... Um, <laughs> Uh, Dean is ready to go. Dean appears to be like cracking his knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> but but then it, it, the the kind of pathos of it didn't kind of work on me. I didn't find myself kind of um, uh, uh, crying at, at 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 any point. And I I, I feel like that would have e- elevated it even more 
you know, if I if 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 I really felt for um and any of the characters. But no, the, like this movie is a um, you know grand slam. It's, uh, I like. I like that we formalize the two stage test for Andrew. It makes you laugh. It makes you cry. So it's like it makes me laugh. That's a, that's <laughs> a clear. Makes me laugh. It makes me cry. It's about something. <laughs> yeah. Um. And also, it's a perfect movie. <laughs> <laughs> but but it can't just be a perfect movie. <laughs> yeah, that's not enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, no. The, the um. Oh, and I'll 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 point out that there was a gratuitous um Star Star Trek reference earlier. <laughs> <laughs> So we're, we we have two now. <laughs> it, it might be becoming hanging. Three if you count the repetition. Uh, uh, anyway, oh, sorry. All right. And for myself, maybe. Again, this is the thing where it's a personal list. Um, and it might not make my own 250. It may end up somewhere in the region of 300, 400. Uh, not that I have an itemized list or a league table that I've been running. And I think what maybe makes the difference for me is, weirdly enough, that thing that Andrew talked about when we talked about, like, The Godfather Part 2, where Andrew's like, this is such a bleak, cynical, dark-hearted movie that while I recognize its greatness, I can't, you know, I can't endorse it. I can't go with it. I just find it, like, so pitch black that it kind of swallows me whole. And ironically... Well, I was like, no, I like The Godfather Part 2. I think it's a perfectly wholesome family movie about good values. <laughs> um, I was like, no, Network is is maybe a bit too dark for me in places. It's maybe like bone-crushingly cynical. It's maybe a point where I, I find it maybe being a little bit too too black and too dark but he, for me. The person. humor doesn't kind of... Does, does that make it worse or better? It somehow makes it worse because it feels kind of glib. And again, this is just me. Dean doesn't have to get angry. I'm not faulting <laughs> the movie. I think it belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made. But just get for him. Me per- get, get him, Dean. Um, but I, I do think that, like, for me personally, it is too black-hearted. Uh, and I think that's, I think it's a movie strength. I understand that's why it appeals to lots of people. I think it's part of what makes it a great movie. But it's not necessarily what makes it a movie it's that I want to It's not the movie's point of view. What? As 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 in that like like it's a satire, so it's not that like the the um, movie is kind of like um, here's how things are and there's nothing that can be done. It's like you know it's confronting the world. Oh, it it is, and I'm again like I'm saying it's in my top four hundred movies. Like it's not I'm not I'm not <laughs> yeah yeah I'm not yeah. dousing the movie with gasoline and setting it alight or anything like that. I'm just saying like what what it why it doesn't make that leap for me right um is because of that. It's like yeah no I, if I if I wanted this I could just turn on the television right now and get most of the vibe that this movie is sending at me, the mood that it's projecting onto me, and the way that it leaves me feeling. I, I guess also it's difficult to say why one example yeah doesn't and one example does yeah. it just uh, it it, it, it just kind of rubs you the wrong way or doesn't that that's it yeah. exactly like again i can't i can't explain why the godfather part two which is arguably just as cynical and bleak and conspiratorial and like about the collapse of society and the idea of the family unit and all this sort of stuff why that doesn't feel as bleak or as dark or you, as you love casino as well i love casino yeah. so much um sorry <laughs> Um, but anyway, so that that's my answer to that. But okay, so Dean, if listeners have not seen Network, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? I would say that if you love the sinking feeling you get when you're watching a film about a satirical or dystopian world, and it slowly dawns on you that this fictional dystopia seems, if anything, quaint compared to the moment in history in which you were watching it, you should definitely pause the podcast and watch Network immediately. Because you will experience that feeling. <laughs> so it's the, it's the RoboCop Blade Runner bump is what we're pitching here. 
<laughs> oh yeah. It's like folksy Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> um and Kira, what about yourself? Do you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and stream the movie to a local device? Yeah, do it. It's, it's good. And I mean you mightn't like it, but that's <laughs> that's your problem. <laughs> I want to be clear. I did like it. I just didn't love it on reserve. I don't mean you. I meant the the royal you. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew, uh, would you recommend the podcast or watching the movie? I would. I would recommend it, um, especially if if you haven't seen it. But if you have seen it already, I think it's worth a rewatch. Um, definitely, because I I I didn't really. I remembered the stuff that like people who haven't seen the movie know. Have absorbed passively, <laughs> like through yeah, yeah. exactly. But I, through I, I didn't really quite remember how it how it went. Um. So and and it was a rewarding rewatch. So I I I I would recommend um people watch it. There's, like we said already, it's great performances. It's very funny. Um. It's also just a very well made movie. Yes. Yeah, and um, it 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 feels like kind of important. And that you're watching something that the people can be proud of. Yeah, I think Lumet has this, has Lumet described this as his favorite movie. I think of the movies that he made, uh, I believe so. And it's interesting that's because weird if he did. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, like that's because... I, like I love Network, but that's incorrect, Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> Would you be a, a Twelve Angry Men or a Dog Day Afternoon? Dog or... Day Afternoon. All right. I've only seen three Lumet films, but Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> Um, interestingly enough, Dog Day Afternoon is the Lummet movie that was on the 250 and dropped off. So it's the only <gasps> Lummet movie. Yeah, it's it's of those three, the one that is not on the 250 at present. Is Serpico uh, on it? Nope, Serpico was never <gasps> on it. It's an interesting movie as well. They, they, they are, are, Lummet is interesting in doing movies that can be subversive, like um, 50 years after they were made, kind of, I guess, or yeah. 40 or 50, I suppose. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, and, I, and at the time seen as something of a journeyman director. Like, again, not seen as part of, say, the new Hollywood movement, not considered with Coppola, uh, with Scorsese. Scorsese obviously directed The Conversation, Spielberg, um, any of these other <laughs> uh, key creative figures. Uh, but the idea that, yeah, that uh, Lummet was never seen at the time as one of those figures. He was seen more as kind of like a journeyman director. And you look at his filmography and it's like, nope, these are, most of these are stone cold <laughs> classics. Um, and most of them are far ahead of their time. And most of them are saying things about not only seven culture but america in general it's quite astounding it's an incredible body of work i'd say in terms of the recommendation as well i imagine and darren can probably correct me but i imagine the slam on this is that it's kind of like first year sort of um you know um of 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 uni kind of like um down with the man kind of challenging everything and that it's shallow I thought sense. I thought the slam on it would be the opposite, which is it's kids these days with their rock and roll and their hip hop. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I think those are interesting discussions to have when we get into the spoiler zone. But but, but, but okay, what, what, Darren what, says trying to move the podcast. No, no. What, what 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 I was going to say is I I I think it's sophisticated enough to kind of over overcome that, or that even if it is kind of broad, I don't think it's naive. Okay. Do we? Do we want to talk about what the big knock on this movie seems to be from the reading that I've done of the negative reviews, or do we want to go to the spoiler zone? Let's just let's just okay, <laughs> let, let's let's just acknowledge what the knock that I've read on this movie seems to be, right? And then we can that could be like food that we talk about maybe after the jump. 
the the big knock or the big negative review that I see from people even today who do not respond well to it is the idea that it can be read any number of ways and it's deliberately ambiguous and that it has this idea where it can be claimed by any number of po political or social perspectives to support any number of arguments where Howard that's, Beale that's why it's good. I, <laughs> I agree. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Where like it, you can have like people modeling themselves on Howard Beale, like for example Glenn Beck, but also Walter Cronkite, but also Stephen Colbert, but also Alec Jones, and how all these people see themselves in Beale. And both, the question, like, <laughs> both, both the character and, and the and, and the and, person, and, uh, Alec Colbert. Jones, see themselves inspired. <laughs> oh by yes, him. yeah. <laughs> these are all performance artists. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, but yes. Okay. So yeah, that's the knock. We'll get to that when we get this more zone for myself yes wholeheartedly unreserved <laughs> recommendation um go go watch this movie see this movie how can people watch it uh it is available to stream uh, you can rent it online from a digital provider it is uh again due to interesting distribution rights which fine feck it will do this now thank you andrew um <laughs> Originally, um, Paddy Chayefsky and his producer... Um, this is something... important if people want to know how to watch it. Yeah, Howard, Howard Godfrey, they went to... Uh, how can I watch this, Darren? Well, let me tell you... <laughs> let me tell you the entire production history 1974. of 1974. Um, <laughs> in 1974, Howard Godfrey, who's working as producer uh, for, Jason, for Paddy Jaskin... Like they sued United Artists about something. Close enough, actually. They... they, they <laughs> They signed. They signed up with United Artists to so make the like movie. United Artists kind of needed the needed the movie. Desperately needed to hit because it used they to hadn't be on had. Netflix. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, fine. You you can stream it online uh, wherever you stream good movies. If you are in the United States, it is the rare, and this is what I was getting to, Andrew. Thank you Sorry. very much. It is the rare <laughs> MGM movie that is available on Movies Anywhere, despite MGM not being a partner of Movies Anywhere. I thought United Artists were. Bought out by MGM when they collapsed, and then MGM were bought by Amazon now. Amazon, Amazon now. Well, I believe it's it, however it is. It's the rights have ended up elsewhere, and I think it's the United Artists aspects of it. And again, the, the reason for this is because Chayefsky sells the script to United Artists. United Artists pay something like three hundred thousand dollars, which is unprecedented at the time for the script. Uh, they hold, they have a, they, they read the script, and the head of business management calls Chayefsky and Gottfried into a meeting, and he says, "Look." I got I got one one question about this script, and, and like Gottfried is sitting there crying into his hands because he's like I know what's going to happen here. Chayefsky's like I would like to hear what your question is about the script that I wrote, and the business analyst says this uh, Beale character I don't uh, I don't get him. What's his deal? What's he about? What's the movie? What's he saying? At which point, <laughs> uh, point Chayefsky stands up, storms out of the room. Gottfried looks at the head of business analyst and says I. Feckin' told you. Um, and apparently got uh, uh, Chayefsky ends up taking the movie away from United Artists, taking it to MGM, and then having MGM sell it back to United Artists. So they end up paying him another 300 grand for the script that they already <laughs> bought, uh, which is a remarkable bit of kind of gamesmanship there. Uh, but yes, so with that in mind, we'll segue neatly into the so spoilers. So it's on the, oh. you can watch it on the internet. Yes, I mean. yes. You can, you can, you can probably buy a secondhand DVD of it pretty cheap. Yeah, um, and, and the commentary apparently is very good. Limit did a commentary for it, which is apparently very informative. Um, so I'm going to segue into the swear zone, whether people like it or not. <laughs> they can join us on the other side of the spoiler zone. And now... So, Kira, what is Network about for you? Network, uh, for me, 
is about this sort of post-Watergate, pre-Reagan period in America. This transition that doesn't feel like a transition in the moment. It's a crisis. Uh, you've got Watergate and the inflation crisis and the oil crisis and recession and violent crime and, especially important in network, corporate buyouts and consolidation. Uh, and network is about how there will be no more individuals and no more nations, just a handful <laughs> of vast multinational corporations. And how, if you're not lucky, you'll find yourself a man without a corporation. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and whatever might be TV's potential for good, in this environment, it's a tool for exploitation on the production end and brain rot on the consumption end. Yeah, in terms of this as a very kind of like 70s movie, the transition, as you said, from Nixon to Reagan, to the point that people often forget that like Ford and Carter actually exist. It <laughs> it feels very much, it's, it reminds me a lot of something like, say, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the, the remake, where it's about, and I think Dean kind of hit on this earlier when he said like, it's about fear of yuppies. But it's about this idea that like people cease to exist anymore where they are just like manufactured like consumers and content generators and products and they like live. cogs yeah, it's they live it's that kind of vibe where it's like you have this discussion of like say Hackett for example where Diane says you know like where you know at, at one stage Max is like I heard you were having an affair with Hackett and Diane's like Hackett doesn't have any impulses or urges or desires or lusts outside of satisfying the corporation and then you have like Diane herself who is like so tied up in that that she's like she can't stop talking about market share even as she's <laughs> having sex like having an illicit affair you have like you have like this speech and again this is one of the interesting kind of tensions of the movie where there is a sense that you know that the character Beale is in some ways like a mouthpiece for some of the stuff that Chayesky's kind of feeling in particular Chayesky kind of talked about how like he was concerned about the investment as a Jewish person in 1970s America. He was concerned about things like rising anti-Semitism, but he was particularly concerned about things like the investment from Arab countries in the Middle East in America. So the investment and fund. That, yeah, and then that kind of filters but into the movie. Does this movie have anything to tell us today? But, okay. <laughs> okay, but the point that I was going to make is you have that speech that like that Beale gives where he says, creatures that look human but aren't. And you have that like, immediately before the big argument between like Max and Diane where he's like look I can't love you or because you don't know how to love can you love me and she's like I don't know how to love and it is that sense of like yeah that idea the fear of of as Dean described the yuppie generation the idea of people who don't have any of those pesky like feelings or emotions what's that line I feel guilty and conscious stricken and all those things you think sentimental but which my generation called simple human decency <laughs> Um, so like, I guess actually that's something that Akira kind of mentioned. So either, either Dean or Kira in terms of this, like, is there a sense of like kids these days to the movie? Is there a sense of like, in my day, we had feelings and emotions. Well, that's, that's the thing is like, on one hand, oh, it's going kids these days or the, the TV generation, um, which is usually very lame, but also I have no urge whatsoever to defend the honor of baby boomers in the mid seventies. <laughs> um, Dean, what about yourself? Cause you were the one who kind of mentioned that kind of like fear of yuppiedom or encroaching yuppiedom. Um, what about in terms of the movie in that sense? Yeah. It, for me, uh, network is a film about, uh, commodifying dissent, manufacturing consent and, 
what if smart people tried to do QAnon? Um, much, mu- they do a much worse job than the dumb people have done. <laughs> but um, yeah, like the even at the time, but especially like years after Trump, seeing like uh, a guy just one time go. This is all a load of bulls. God damn it! And then someone immediately is like, I can commodify that. I can make money off that. I can sell that to the American people. I can re This I can, guy's box office. I can I can save this dying dinosaur corporation from the past by commodifying dissent against the establishment this media corporation is part of. I re- yeah, I've, I've, I really like that. Did did it always rem- and I think that more companies ought to do it. And the thing that I always think of is WWE and WWF. How a lot of their um, like the worldwide wildlife federation. The the, the world <laughs> wrestling federation when I was a child, and now I think it's world wrestling entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> there was a famous lawsuit. There was, there was, yeah. We're the panda. You could say that they wrestled control of the copyright from them, but Andrew, sorry. (laughs) um, No, the the idea of a company um, supporting a message of itself as an evil, like, (laughs) money-grabbing, like, faceless um, uh, entity, kind of, like, ruled... By uh, you know, uh, greedy kind of avaricious. Um, Vince, uh, Vince McMahon monsters. has the good sense to cast himself as a heel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which 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 I think as a piece of marketing works very well, and I feel like more companies should be like kind of like. We, you know, yeah, that, I mean, that like, they should the be like... between Amazon and Disney. Like, people are disappointed when Disney does things like, say, support anti-gay legislation because they try and sell themselves as wholesome. Whereas on the other hand, Amazon are, like, avowedly evil. And so people are like, I, you know, I can kind of accept that image that goes with them. Yeah, I mean... I mean Disney like, are pretty d- avowedly d- evil, too. D- 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 no, no, you can't evil say that. evil with a smile. Yeah. That's they, it, yeah. They, ironic given the Amazon logo. They, they had that gay character in um, Endgame. Yeah, and that made everything okay. <laughs> what, what, was it, what was it? A uniquely gay moment? Isn't that what they had in Beauty and the Beast? Exclusively gay Exclusively moment. gay. Exclusively gay moment. Which um, was... What, what was that... I, f- it, I feel like every just... year, Disney have their first gay character, and it's like... It's... LeFou dances with a guy at the end. That's it. it. If, I, every time I feel like I'm going insane. Every time they have their first exclusively gay character, or whatever, <laughs> and, it just, and it never stops. A character in Jungle Cruise didn't get married, and therefore was Disney's first gay character. It's it's something. It's something. Else. Yeah. Remember that time when 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 that man patted Sulu on the back in Star Trek, and all of a sudden Star Trek <laughs> had its first gay character after I think fifty years at that point. Uh, uh yeah yeah the definitely I can definitely not think of any character in the original series who is gay. That's, that's definitely <laughs> nobody. Well, when no. when they were going to leads who who <laughs> generate an entire genre of subfiction about two men doing things to one another, or that Gene Roddenberry described as soulmates in both body and soul. Um, when whenever they go into like an alternate dimension and meet the biz- bizarro versions of themselves, they're always very bisexual. 
<laughs> I mean, like, that that is its own trope, which is slightly yeah. from. They would they would signify that they're evil by the, them having mustaches and being like very horny. Yeah, well, that, that was it. Like, like men get mustaches, uh, the female characters get to be horny. That's how you know they're evil. Um, but okay, sorry. Back to the corporations marketing. Okay, or not? Back, never mind. Back to WWE. <laughs> yeah, I, think I was saying one level off <laughs> in terms of marketing. Like you know, say like um, if Domino's had advertising which said like at corporate we care a lot about controlling our costs but our people are very generous so like we asked them to put like um, to, to limit the amount of flavor they put into these pizzas but they they just go wild <laughs> and we can't stop them um and you know un, un, unfortunately our people are our best are our greatest strength so we can't sack them <laughs> until the automated pizza maker 5000 arrives but exactly. i mean but th- that that Get is your pizza quick before the pizza maker 5000 arrives but like that that is the thing in terms of like commodifying dissent that kind of like i think dean and gear kind of mentioned there where it's like where you have shows like say the boys which are these kind of like meant to be this bold anti-capitalist statement about like how corporations are corrupt and evil and how like worse than super villains are people who make money by manufacturing all this content that you're consuming eagerly which is on amazon prime so please subscribe and give amazon <laughs> money in order to watch this anti-capitalist statement like it is it's a really fascinating kind of cynical circle and like i I, what I find interesting is to bring it back to something Dean said there about like the less effective kind of QAnon aspect of it. I think what I find the only aspect of, or one of the few aspects of the movie I find almost naive is that, as Dean said, this is the story about an aged institution with absolutely no standards or morality guiding it, which has understood that its viewership is dwindling, its influence is fading over time and makes a last ditch effort to recruit a showman a huckster, a man who is quite probably insane and has no connection to reality whatsoever, to speak to the masses and stoke up resentment and hopefully generate interest in their product. And what I find most incredibly naive in the context of watching this in like 2022 is that there is a scene in this movie where the head of the corporation walks down to this mad prophet, puts his hand on his knee and says, you know, you have meddled with the primal forces of nature and you will atone. And the man actually atones and toes the line. And he's like, yes, I will respect this institution that I've kind of come into. Whereas if you're drawing that kind of obvious parallel with like the Republican Party and Trump, it feels more like the institution got completely overrun and taken over and infested and uh, has no control. Beale is controlling the building. Beale is the villain. That's the difference between, I think, this movie and reality. No, and, and, and oh, okay, I, I, okay, I, I right. disagree okay. with that. I, 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 think, I think they're both... Um, uh, I think Beale is uh, beholden to Jensen, but it also works the opposite way around. I, 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 I think they have um, a reciprocal relationship okay. where J- J- Jensen um, not only has a converted Beale, but has also been converted by Beale, where, 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 where Jensen insists on keeping him on... Um, but he's keeping him on the air because he's preaching the gospel according to Jensen now. He's, he's, yes, he's but it's not tamed. making him money or no, increasing yeah. his market share. But it's, yeah. it's 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 Beale doing the thing that that uh, Reagan did for um, uh, like General Electric, um, b- 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 before becoming um, uh, governor of California, um, is you know be, being being the kind of like the friendly face of. Um, I, I, I do think, though, that the movie is very much like, no, Beale is, Beale is won over by Jensen and Beale is, like, 
corrupted by Jensen and he's unable to break out of that. Like the bit where he sits down and he says, you know, your lives don't matter. Nothing matters. Why are you fighting? Like, what are you doing? And that's that's the gospel according to Jensen, not the gospel well, the, according to Beale. Sorry, sorry, Kira. The scene where where Beale meets with Jensen, it's very deliberately written and shot to parallel um, the dream slash vision slash hallucination slash earlier in the film insert whatever you want to say about when Beale was visited by an angel who told him to why me you're on television dummy yeah 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 um and and it's ambiguous whether Jensen is deliberately referencing that to like manipulate uh Beale's like mental illness or Jensen is actually like the devil. <laughs> I have seen um, the face of God. You just might have. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I, I don't know. I do think that Jensen knows his mark or understands his demographic. But, but, but it's that moment yeah. where he says, like, uh, he does that big speech. He's like, "Am I getting through to you at all?" Like that's that's one of the great laugh lines in the movie where he does he gives this big fire and brimstone speech, and it's like, "Am I getting through? I'm using your language. I'm communicating yeah. to you in the language that you will use. You this should be breaking through to you somehow." Um, but like, I do think like, okay, fine. Let's talk about Jensen because like, it's interesting though because it's it's doing something that the movie does in the opposite direction where it's turning uh, what the what the what the happens in the movie is that they turn counterculture into currency yeah and then um what jensen does is he turns currency into kind of religion you know well like where, jensen actually where it becomes in this mystical doing. thing yeah he actually believes in capitalism as an ideology rather than like as you said he's keeping beale on the air even though beale is losing him money because he believes in what Beale is like, what what Beale is preaching. I think. I think like I think we're meant to take Jensen as a spiritual force, uh, like that he does believe in capital. I think like that we do like yeah. We get a sense later on that that he's he's because you would you would think in that scene that he's just a salesperson. Yeah, and because he literally says, "I want to sell something to you." I started out in sales. I want to sell something. Yeah, um, and that he's using that kind of. Um, register yeah as you say to get to get through but 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 then he becomes kind of a a, a zealot yeah but sorry dean kieran what about what about jensen as, as a character like do we think that he actually believes any of this stuff is does he believe in market forces as an ideology or is he just like bankrupt in any real moral sense he just likes money like is he do are we meant to buy him as a believer or is he just cynical capitalist I think that asking that question is very similar to asking whether somebody is um, a neocon or like somebody who believes in the pursuit of power for its own sake at all costs. <laughs> like the, you're, that's the, those are the two. Those are the same thing. So, <laughs> like, he is a cynical. He's zealotly produce Like he he's he's a zealot for making money. <laughs> And it is worth noting that Beatty only had only spent a day working on this movie, which is quite remarkable. He was only on set for a day filming those two scenes. Uh, the scene where he says, very good, Hackett, exemplary, keep it up. Uh, which is one of those great setup and callback moments. Um, and he's there during that big speech, which they shot in the New York Public Library. Um, apparently. But what's, what's so fascinating about that speech is that it's it's true. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, they didn't, they didn't, I mean, 
Patty presumably didn't know it while he was writing it or like didn't know for sure. But he's literally describing like the changes in the global economy that yeah, occurred the... over the following 20 years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's globalization. Well, it, it, it's it, it, it's it, like it, it's globalization neoliberalism, ironically, for all that, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, the, the, I, I suppose it, it, it's, it had already kind of begun. Yeah, yeah. That the ball, it's the boulder has started rolling down the hill, as it were. I mean, and and again, there is something just to, to mention, kind of. I think I can't remember who who said it, whether it was uh, Dean, Kira, or Andrew. But like you mentioned, like this idea of like monetizing uh, dissent and kind of like exploiting that. There is something again very like seventies about this movie, where it feels like it's a movie about like the sixties are over, and what does that mean in terms of like counterculture? Where obviously you have it with the Mao Zedong hour, where you have like literal <laughs> communists. Um, and as Kira said, I think it was a Kira alluded to that sequence earlier on, the moment where like they have the give her the overhead privileges, uh, where he fires the gun. <laughs> at the God damn it! My distribution costs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, where you have this the like communist party isn't going to see a cent out of this until syndication <laughs> yeah. and you have like that later moment where she's in the room with Diane and she's just ranting about how like going airing after Beale is a death sentence because she's going on against Little House on the Prairie um, but like the idea of like monetizing counterculture and exploiting counterculture which again feels like a very late 70s thing it feels very much again like Invasion of the Body Snatchers where it's like you had this big social movement and consciousness at the end of the 60s where people were like okay what if we actually try to change the system? What if we try to upend the system? What if we try to expand our consciousness and our horizons and look at the world in new ways? And you have this transition into the 80s where it's like, what if we just monetize this? Um, like, like what is it? Like, it's the A.B. Hoffman and the other guy. Who was the other guy um, that I'm thinking of? The oh. Guy, um... The yippee versus yuppie debates. Um, the guy who ended up getting, was it stock in Apple? I'm thinking of. What? what the, 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 Played by Jeremy... Like a... Played by yes, uh, played by Jeremy Strong in uh, was it the, the Trial of the Chicago Seven? Yeah. All right, I'm I gonna <laughs> I'm gonna go to the fact machine and just draw that up real quick because I don't like describing him as the guy played by Jeremy Strong in Trial of the Chicago Seven. We're pro Trial of the Chicago Seven at the Sunday, just for the record. Interest. Okay, that's that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> what does that mean? Great. It's great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm we're quite, back from- I quite liked it. I'm, I'm, yeah. We're back from the The fact that sorry, go, go, go ahead. We'll get back from the back machine in a moment. Go ahead there, Dean. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say the fact that a bunch of people in the Obama administration said they were inspired to be the most like evil soulless sellouts because they watched the West Wing does not is not an indictment of the character of Aaron Sorkin and everybody needs to get over themselves and stop acting like he destroyed <laughs> he destroyed like the second, like the, the the decade or something, by like, because the people who watch the West Wing that s- s- worked with the Obama administration over crap, like leave them alone. <laughs> You're doing the same thing to Adam McKay all over again. This time, just because he's tweeting, it's like. Okay, okay. Um, several things to unpack there. First of all, Sorkin, <laughs> Sorkin is a big Chayefsky fan um, and has like spoken. He dedicated, I believe, his Oscar for the social network. He cited Chayefsky as a huge source of inspiration there. Um, you mentioned there things like, say, the uh, the Don't Look Up, for example, and the Adam McKay situation that happened there. Adam McKay has said that he was usually influenced by network in terms of making that movie. Um, and because we are back from the fact machine, uh, it was Jerry Rubin. <laughs> Jerry Rubin is the man whose name I was trying to remember. But we're, you not, ha- we're not going to unpack the Obama administration. <laughs> <laughs> Let's list them one at a time. Yeah. Um, but okay. 
But my, my point is that you have this movement at the end of the 70s where you have these people who are counterculture becoming part of the, the establishment and kind of like selling that, packaging that, and kind of like turning it into commerce. And the way in which, again, capitalism consumes everything, including like rival ideologies and tries to sell it back to you. I, again, I just think that's a really great part of the movie at the risk of being that thing that Andrew says, where it's like, it's very sophomore philosophy, Darren. Um but I, I, I find that's part of the movie that has aged remarkably well, because, yeah, it, it, we are living in that era, I think, uh, as Dean described, the manufacturing consent, to quote Chomsky, kind of level of, of kind of, uh, of kind of, uh, well, world, culture, society, everything. <laughs> um, I, I think that's part of why it's not super ideologically coherent, actually, because it's just like, because... A anything can be commodified or or turned into like the idea that it can be taken different ways by different people um which it definitely can and i'm not saying actually blah, 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 but p part of the reason for that is because the corporation is willing to absorb anything and so Therefore, uh, Pajewski makes jokes about those things. Also, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? I mean, there there are debates at the time about things like, say, the presentation of Diana, uh, Diana as a as a female character, and like the the question of whether or not that's a kind of a sexist or chauvinist oh, portrait. Yeah. I be I believe Lumet told her that if she uh, tried to make the character is sympathetic he'd edit it out <laughs> yeah if i see a frame of vulnerability i'm gonna cut it i'm gonna remove it in the ending room uh, which is i think how he described it there as well but that's the kind of argument about like do women have to be perfect in movies yeah you know where where like she is a um a a, a sociopath but she's very kind of she's a very interesting <laughs> character to 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 play the the was, fact sorry, that he I, like he quote unquote falls in love with her, but he hates her. He hates <laughs> her the entire time. It's like it's <laughs> all he means is she's very attractive, mm -hmm. but but he so some other people might have some trouble uh, with love. Is all I'm saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, I well, I, and the idea I that she's, she's very compelling in the sense that um, she is not. Um, like your average human being, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. She's a lizard in a skin suit. I mean, like, <laughs> but no, I mean to be fair, like it's like, oh, you're serious. Well, that, that's you know that that kind of thing is like fascinating. <laughs> but I mean, uh, this is this is how you think and talk. Um, <laughs> I mean, that that's the thing. She's about... also like fiercely intelligent, like, and that sort yeah. of stuff. And again, the, the idea that, you know, it can be read as a commentary on what it takes for a woman or in that time for a woman and today, to be frank as well, where women are perceived as being overly emotional in the workplace if they don't behave like sociopaths. Um, that sort of thing where you have that double standard that exists. But I mean, there is also... You said to Margaret Thatcher, no one's going to take you seriously <laughs> unless you invade the Falklands. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, do all those other bad things. What was that, that question? <laughs> Prove you're just as bad as men. <laughs> uh, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That question, like, was Margaret Thatcher using girl power when she invaded the Falklands? <laughs> yeah, that question for the Spice Girls. Um, but no, I mean, like, because that's the thing with the movie and the portrayal of Max, where, like, I wonder, like, Max 
is the movie like when I watch the movie, I wonder like, is Max meant to be the most sympathetic character? Are we supposed to be like Max is a human being with feelings and emotions? And as Andrew said, has one of those like lackadaisical seventies affairs where it's just like taking a holiday from your wife. And like, to be fair, Oscar winning speech aside, uh, she's pretty understanding. She's like, you'll be back. I get to be angry, but you'll be back. Um, but like, yeah, it's like a lot of these kind of like seventies affairs. It's like, Oh, how boring Charles. Uh, you're just blowing up the domestic family unit and ruining my life and your daughter's life. Be a little bit creative. Um, yeah. but you like, think I'm a square, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> but like, is, does the movie, like, that's that's a question I ask when I watch it. Like, how much of the movie expects us to be, to see, like, Max as arguably the hero? Because again, that ties back into the question of the kids these days argument, where you have him, like, he's played by William Holden, who's this embodiment of kind of like 1950s cinema. Like, you have this idea that he kind of like harks back. They're all talking about like 1950s newsrooms and stuff like that. And he's the one who he's delivers. He's writing a book about, about the <laughs> like, like everybody else. Yeah. Like him, uh, him and Walter Cronkite hanging out or whatever. Yeah. Um, Walter Cronkite loved this movie until he actually saw it. There's a fun fact. And the, the Patty Hearst character uh, in this movie. And again, I love that it's like, it exists in the real world. Patty Hearst exists, but there's also a knockoff Patty Hearst um, because there's like, it's not the, the is it the Somalian uh, Liberation Army? It's the ecumenical uh, liberation. Yeah, instead of the Symbionese, it's the ecumenical. Yeah. Uh, and I noticed that um, Ned Beatty uses the word ecumenical in his final speech was uh, an ecumenical Ooh. world corporation. Yeah, implying Ooh. that again, the idea of resistance is corporatized and kind of folded into it. But again, like that idea, that question, like, the, the idea of like ecumenical uh, as kind of like accommodating kind of whatever stripe you are, is, as like, ultimately intended to reconcile all ideologies under one yeah, banner is what you. It's okay. Is a fair interpretation of ecumenical in that context. It's okay. The almighty dollar. It's okay if you're a communist. Uh, we still want your money. Yeah. Um, you, you will have to accept that you won't make a dollar off it until it goes into syndication, unfortunately. <laughs> but I mean, that's just the reality in which we work. But like the way in which like Max gets delivered, like the screw you stuff to Diana and, and the way in which like he's presented as the one person in the movie who maybe actually cares about Howard Beale, even though he like disappears from Beale's life after the second <laughs> act. Like what, mm. to what extent does this... He say that he's mm. his friend. He does. And... and he... He's been having like very short sex with um, with, with no woman exploiting him. Like that's the, the that's, person doing it. That's the like. To what extent does the movie expect us to be sympathetic to Max and to treat him as a viewpoint character? That's what I kind of wonder. And I know that it it doesn't really matter. It doesn't the... get to orgasm. <laughs> 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 meant to be sympathetic. <laughs> I I do think how much you are you think that you're supposed to identify with or sympathize with Max kind of impacts how much you enjoy it. Um, like because Pauline Kael said that Max is basically a stand-in for Pajajewski, and that he's just like righteous or whatever. And I don't read it that way at all. Uh, because. <laughs> He he never does anything good in the whole movie. <laughs> I, like he so, he does sometimes say things that are correct, but and then he just continues to do bad things. So like, he very self awareedly <laughs> says that like I'm playing out a role in a script. I'm not like I do, I it's I think it's hard to read a character who is like 
describing himself as willingly complying with the wishes of a woman <laughs> he he accurately describes as maybe incapable of love uh, as somebody who's not like someone we're about to see as a moral exemplar someone who's really taking yeah. responsibility <laughs> for their moral duties <laughs> towards other people he probably he probably is the closest other than i guess his wife to somebody who recognizes that morality exists but that's as far as it gets <laughs> it's like yeah I, the- I am aware that there are that that one should be moral but i'm not going to do anything about it among the many transitions i think this film is about part of it is the kind of like transition of the ruling elite from this the kind of post-war like patrician paternalism of the like the wealthy we are the people who are going to like you know we're gonna uh, all work together and build a sort of international capitalism within which conflict won't occur between us that's why we and we're bringing peace and democracy by spreading the capitalism and we do a lot of philanthropy because we actually think that's cleansing ourselves somehow Two, the like post corporatization neoliberal financialized elite who are like, we do charity exclusively for PR and we will <laughs> shave down the cost. We will get those margins exactly how much charity we're doing for exactly how much PR. And we uh, rule because we do rule. We have the power, we have all the money. What are you going to do about it? Uh, that's, <laughs> I feel like there's uh, a huge element of that in, in um, Max being, you know, Television used to be something more than this. Uh, it was. It was. It was imperfect, and we don't have to take back a hundred percent of his word completely seriously. But uh, he's also really, really right about <laughs> what's coming: being unfeeling and capable of humanity. Yeah, we're, we're in an interesting place now, where, like, they they mentioned like Saudi Arabia, and there's a big thing at the moment in sports watching, both in golf and oh yeah there's the, the whole Premier big thing League. that's happening with golf at the moment and in professional like wrestling wwe again really oh yeah they do multiple shows a year in saudi arabia now that are funded by the the saudi state ministry of sport or tourism development or whatever and they uh yeah there's a whole thing <laughs> And, and I love they... that wrestling has become the through line of this particular <laughs> podcast. In many ways, network is about wrestling. Yeah, that, that I'd like to change my answer to that question. I think it is yeah. about wrestling. So, sorry, sorry, Dean, we we got you off there. Oh my there. god, Darren's got a chair. <laughs> it's coming right at you. Um, yeah. But okay, do you want to talk a little bit about because you mentioned the idea of television and the idea of television and and kind of purity and stuff like that? Because this is network is is like arguably like the zenith. Of, like, movies being, like, you know what will rot your brain? Television. <laughs> like, you know what is the worst thing to happen to culture? Television. And obviously, like, there's a big, big, long history of it. Like, you've got, like, Elia Kazan's face in the crowd. Like, Singing in the Rain uh, shows up in the bathroom in Diana's apartment, which is, like, I absolutely love. Because that's another great example of Hollywood being, like, uh, we're afraid of change, but we mean uh, from silent films to talkies, not anything that's actually happening in pop culture in the 50s. Uh, pay no attention to anything that might challenge uh, movie's dominance. But you have obviously, like, you have movies after this, like, say, Broadcast News, for example. You go on, you could argue, like, The Truman Show is an example, Anchorman 2. Yeah, but, but like... Broadcast News is awesome. It, it is fantastic. But, like, I find it interesting that, like, this is a movie... 
And again, this is one of the big controversies about it as well, because when they were making it, one of the big internal memos from MGM was like, how are we going to turn a profit on this? Like, television stations aren't going to want to air this uh, because it's so mean to television. They're not going to want to give coverage to it. You're going to end up with newsreaders. And you had, like, newsreaders who had given Chayefsky kind of, like, the tour of the newsroom. And they're like, so you're working on something. It's like, yeah. So you're going to make sure that you portray the news industry accurately and fairly. It's like, yep, yep, I am. Uh, and then they watched the movie and were like, <laughs> what the hell is this? Like Walter Cronkite went from being like, I'm so excited that my daughter's in this movie. I'm so excited that I gave Jaski a tour. I've like been a consultant on the script to this is the worst thing that ever existed. What the hell is it? <laughs> and then within 20 years going back around to Howard Beale is my hero. Um, <laughs> it feels like a strange thing to misunderstand. Did he feel like that that this is, movie is saying that new, uh, news um, is this? I think it's saying that like news is this big important thing um, that we that, that we ought to fight for. I feel um, like it's a love letter to Walker Walter Cronkite. Yeah. What if this power fell into the wrong hands? Exactly. Which, I Which is exactly what he actually happened. says. <laughs> and also a line in the script where they talk about like the death of like, is it uh, who's the, the, the former president of the news? Ruddy. Ruddy, yeah. Ruddy, yeah. When he has the heart attack. I love, by the way, that the president of the network is constantly present, but com- mostly completely silent. He's always <laughs> sitting in the background or on the phone and all these conversations are happening around him and he has no power. Sorry. Are we, by the way, coming back to Aaron Sorkin? Do we want to? Okay, do you want to come back to Aaron Sorkin? <laughs> I mean, no, I was Aaron, just thinking about Aaron Sorkin because the newsroom. Yes, I mean, exactly. Yeah, Dean has watched the newsroom. I have. I've watched all three seasons of the newsroom. I like it more than most people who. <laughs> How do you feel about Studio Sixty? Uh, not yet. I have the box set though, so it's it's waiting. Sports Night is the best thing Sorkin ever wrote. <laughs> That's waiting for the Sorkin rehabilitation. Sports Night for life. No, oh, I haven't I watched it yet, but uh, I've been Kira's been banging the Sports Night drum for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> but Andrew, sorry, you wanted to bring it back to Sorkin. No, I could just see it going in that direction because it was like, <laughs> is this is this kind of like a, a love letter to news <laughs> and, uh, and the sanctity of that is Judo. It's like, well, who's gonna do? He's gonna, gonna tie it back in this. Yeah. But I do have a Rob Lowe anecdote now that you mentioned it. Uh, thank you very much for providing that segue. Um, where like Rob Lowe, who like I love that Rob Lowe has reinvented himself as like cultural commentator where he was like reviewing the yeah like like rob lowe's had this fantastic arc where he's now this raconteur and stuff um yeah podcaster isn't he yeah which by the way is is is, is, him and alan yang reviewing all of parks and rec right that's a podcast (laughs) that's gotta be right a lot of i feel like that's a real podcast i'm pretty sure it is but okay but okay okay (laughs) they say a lot of people these days understand podcasting as the counter programming to like um you know uh, throw away short attention span kind of um you know um glitz like this um, podcast for example that the, the, yeah exactly <laughs> that podcasting has replaced like books because <laughs> it's like books are all great and everything but you have to like pick them up and like yeah, you, you can't you can't read a book on a treadmill yeah, exactly. you can't half read a book you on can a listen to an yeah. audiobook on a treadmill you can but what are audiobooks but long podcasts (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly i've been listening to the podcastization of a john ronson book (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, 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 yes, on, on Radio 4, isn't it? No, no, I mean, I was joking that I was listening to the audiobook of them, <laughs> oh. Adventures of Extremists. Oh, okay, sorry. He, ha- he has, he has, he's, he's doing a BBC podcast. Oh, oh, yeah, the, uh, me and Kira both listen to it, I think, right? Yeah. Um, Things Fall Apart. What's it called again? Things Fall Apart. Things so, Fall Apart, yeah, Things right. Fall Apart, right. yeah. So if I could circle back around to the Rob Lowe anecdote. Rob Lowe, of course, appears in Network, the film we're talking Fam- about. Yeah, famous podcaster Rob Lowe. If you go low, they oh, go no high. Okay, okay. okay. This is going to be a joy to edit. I can tell this already. Um, so I go Lowe. for that as I'm dropping the microphone, <laughs> yeah. like n- n- not in a triumphant way, <laughs> just uh, cl- clumsily dropping the mic. <laughs> All right, so. So Rob Lowe recounts his story, the one story that he knows about P- uh, Paddy Jayevsky, which is that he was talking to the great producer, Erwin Winkler. Uh, and obviously, as we mentioned, Rocky and Network were competing against each other on the awards circuit. Uh, at the Los Angeles Critics Films, uh, Film Critics Association Awards, uh, both of them were up for Best Picture. It was announced that like Network and Rocky had both won in a tie, an equal number of votes among the film critics present. Winkler turned to Jayevsky offered his hand and said, congratulations. Chievsky looked him up and down and said, I hope you die. (laughs) 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 And like in terms of Andrew Andrew describing this movie as a love letter to television, see, I knew I'd come back. I just needed the setup to it. I uh, need the ramp up to it. You have Chayefsky being interviewed around the time the movie's released, and he says, the industry has no pride and no culture. The movies, with all their crassness, can point to something they've done with pride during the year. Television never can. And it's like, so I don't, I get, I understand why people who were looking at Network and looking at the press cycle for Network were like, maybe not a love letter to television. Um, <laughs> but it is worth noting in terms of like, we talk about that capitalism appropriating absolutely everything that it touches. Uh, it did premiere on CBS in 1978 and Chrysler paid $700,000 to sponsor the broadcast of network on cbs in 1978 because there's no way that this was never going to be something that you could not monetize which is absolutely fantastic i think it's going to get a terrific rating chayefsky said from new york there you go so that that's got it but but like is there something interesting there in terms of like hollywood's suspicion of television and is this movie is this movie paranoid about television in particular or is it just treating television as a manifestation of, as Kira suggested, this larger corporatization of American life, this larger march of capitalism through all forms of expression, including television. Is this particular to television, uh, Dean or Kira? Oh, I, I don't think so. I, th- I think the, 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 the end of the movie kind of, uh, for me, um, kind of gives it away a little bit because there is... Um, in, not the assassination, which actually we haven't mentioned, and I had forgotten, <laughs> which, <laughs> kind of, which kind is of incredible. I had forgotten the that. that uh, I don't one, know. One of the great Just... punchlines in cinema. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Beale goes into syndication. Um... I guess I remember the movie ending as them having this big hit. And then him kind of running out of steam and them saying, oh, well, we tried. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, but they uh, have him killed. <laughs> yeah, they have him like gone down. This is incredible, and it's like multiple camera angles and <laughs> and in slow motion played out across four screens, kind of RoboCop esque. Yeah. I do love that Andrew's alternate version of the screen is like of the movie is like Robert Duvall shrugging his shoulders, like, "Eh, we tried. What are you gonna do?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the people have spoken. Um, <laughs> I'm going back to my wife, and you're going back to California. Um, but, but, but Dean and Kira, like, is this... Could, no, the, like, <laughs> the whole damn thing that I was saying was that, that the movie ends with, like, a cutting to commercials. <laughs> it says, why compromise? And then it has Life Serial, where it, it's, it's, it, it's about kind of um, a more general point about um, the, um, like, trying to be an authentic person in a material world. Sorry, Kira? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, you looked like you were about to say something there. I was, I was thinking about saying something. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then, and then, Go for it. Um, let's see. Okay. Well, I, I love television. Like, as a, <laughs> as a medium. Like, I'm, like, so, I'm very much not of a type of, like, Vast oh, waste te- television. That's not good, or whatever. The boob tube. The the idiot box. Um, <laughs> the vast wasteland of culture. Wasn't that how it was described famously? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but to me, the film, and I mean, I guess partially because because I love television so much, and because I love the movie. To me, it's not. It while it is saying television sucks. I think that it's part of, I think of that that's part of this broader thing of commodification and using television in particular as an example um is as more than an example but like as because television more than almost any other medium is inherently corporate like especially in America it's Funded by advertising, there's an inherent juxtaposition between whatever you're doing and advertising. There's, um, I, I mean, it, it has to be made by a corporation or else it's not television. There's no indie television. It's, yeah, it's, it's just a three, especially in America, there's just those three companies even. Yeah. yeah. The three networks. And, like, the, and so television is both, it, it's, I mean, it is in in amongst other things, uh, primarily in a way. No, wait. What am I saying? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it's a vehicle for advertising, like even yeah. more so than any other thing which holds advertising. It is like that is the entirety of, from a business point of view, that is its function. Yeah, where and, you have like an hour is is was fifty minutes. Uh, a fi- an hour long program was fifty minutes back in the sixties. Ne- then it was forty five in the nineties. Now it's like thirty eight because like you're filling <laughs> that space up with advertising, and that's how you just play everything else. Sorry, here. I, I think it's interesting as well that like the only the, like public access broadcasting in um, in the states is. Um, like Howard B. It's it's deranged <laughs> people being allowed to, was, to, to do television. Access broadcasting was that, and now they just live stream. You know, like 
Exactly. Yeah, they don't. They, public access television is no longer kind of like a thing that is yeah, required. Yeah, public access television. You can have a YouTube or a Twitch, and then, and then YouTube, and then Twitch. Exactly. It's just a logical evolution as we go. And I mean, like again, it's it's worth noting that like it in the context of this movie being released in 1976, it was the uh, suicide of Christine um, Chabuk live on air in like on WXLT TV on the 15th of July, 1974, like is, is something that feels like it was now uh, Chayefsky's, you know, there are enough, there's nothing in his notes that suggests he was inspired by that when he said Beale suggests blowing his own brains out on the air. Um, he has like a line in the script in like a 1975 draft referencing the woman in Florida, but that is cut out, for example, because he didn't see it as being relevant. But it is like, I think that's maybe one of the reasons why people see it as being something that's very specifically TV, because it's, it related, it, it used a jumping off point that to many people in 1976 was very much related to the evils or the scars of television. But Kira, I think, sorry, we cut you off there uh, while you were talking. But but in relation to, to there is something there about, like, especially in the 70s, the media, like, fueling, not fueling, but, like, uh, the relationship between media and violence, not, like, causing violence, but, like, if you're going to assassinate someone you you want the tv cameras there <laughs> you yes. know what well, sort of well i mean like the taxi driver uh, attempted assassination ronald reagan a couple of years later that sort of stuff where it's like where that stuff's kind of driven by i want to be seen i want to be famous the the thing about like he's the playing gigs now by what? the way Sorry? he's playing gigs although i think some of them were cancelled um, <laughs> john hinckley jr yeah john hinckley yeah. jr he's he got has a, a youtube Twitter. channel of course right? he where he uploads yeah, his have, guitar he, Music. Yeah, he, he plays. I've watched a couple of them. He plays very loved piece songs about being happy and not being sad and stuff like uh, that. He's, and again, is he as good as Charlie Manson? Okay, all like right. musically, all right. Um, but like, and you have <laughs> like the assassination. Well, Charles Manson was involved in the Beach Boys, as as you know. Yes, he he did he did want to get himself. His uh, music, like some of it's pretty okay, and it, it, it's okay. <laughs> It's been it's been covered by um was it Guns N' Roses did like a version of it anyway sorry uh, but yeah and you have things like say you mentioned the assassination of like uh, yes, John Lennon give, give it back to the Beatles <laughs> <laughs> reclaim Helter Skelter is that yeah, what we're saying yeah, exactly. here but like things like the assassination of John Lennon where like that was like he just wanted to assassinate somebody he like they when they searched his apartment they found notes about Bowie's uh, theatrical staging of the Elephant Man and it's like he just wanted to shoot somebody famous so he would be famous himself. It, uh... Uh, it, it took a, another couple of years for people to realize you don't have to kill someone famous, you just have to kill a lot of people. And but then that market got flooded. <laughs> what do you do now? Uh, you live stream it and release a manifesto. Oh, yes, okay. yes, the unfortunate manifesto. That's the one too. Which is the sad, yes, state of affairs in which we live. This is a delightful conversation that we somehow found ourselves wondering. <laughs> I, I, uh, I think, I, um, I think, kind of, uh, people have realized though that, um, you know, they they try to kind of make these things more about the victims than about the uh, yeah. perpetrator these days. There have been discussions about how to frame the coverage of that sort of stuff to avoid glamorizing and also spreading uh, the words and playing into the hands of people who do this stuff for those reasons. So um, if you want to be viral, be a victim. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> I beg your pardon. Oh my God. I mean, in some vain attempt to bring it back to the film, I guess. Thank I you. Just... Thank you, Dean. Thank you, Dean. I guess I could say that, all, like... All of this is very well um, 
like predicted in the film with them literally like contracting the ecumenical liberation army to do terrorism <laughs> but just to film yeah. themselves doing it and provide it on a weekly basis at like a yeah, fixed cost we can't <laughs> be directly involved with and, and the yeah. idea that they don't care at all about the politics that are actually being espoused because that's not relevant at all which is kind of amazing like the fact that it's like you can put any propaganda you want in there because we know yeah. that it's not going to stick it's not going to make any impact whatsoever <laughs> because like the cultural waste that we're broadcasting and we just want the impact of and, the imagery and also we don't care yeah because like if, if, if they can't this take over like they're not going to be discussing Marx you know yeah, they're, they're, they're going to be talking out their market having the same there. conversations that we're having but by the way I love it's a small touch but I love that like Beale gets so far into his I'm going to kill myself on air rant without anybody noticing <laughs> everybody oblivious. in the booth yeah. nobody's paying any attention and when whatsoever. they cut to break someone's like did he just say he's going to kill himself <laughs> yeah. even after when he's back at the when they they got him back at the office they're like they're talking about him like he's not there they keep saying Beale in the third person he's just sitting right there watching them talk about him <laughs> And, like, I love that, again, like, Lumet occasionally cuts back to him for a reaction shot as the characters kind of, like, pass around in front of him and talk about him as well. Which, again, is, is that effect of dehumanizing people. Where Beale what ends happens up- when you get elderly as well. They say, like, what are we going to do about Grandpa? <laughs> 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 isn't, isn't Beale all of our grandpas? In, in terms of dehumanizing, I thought a lot about, there was a Channel 4 documentary earlier this year about the Jeremy Kyle show. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, Dean's seen it. Oh, um, it's great documentary. I highly recommend it. And Same. it's very clear in that documentary uh, that the Jeremy Class show was a crime against humanity. Um, but the idea of television exploiting vulnerable, mentally ill people mm. uh, yeah. until they stop making the money and then throwing them away mm-hmm. is very. Uh, I mean, yeah, very, Jerry Springer. Very much, yeah. Yeah, the Springer show uh, on top of hiring well, actors. Yeah, but Jerry Springer's not real. <laughs> they, they, I mean, the Jeremy Kyle show was real. Uh, Did they people... say that everybody was hired actor? I thought that some people were hired actors. I thought that the the, the Springer show was a mix of staged and actual. Uh, there were definitely people yeah, who maybe. who were real people, but were depending on the Springer show to kind of like bring them back and it's like well yeah, money, um, I, I'll make up some I'll yeah. say whatever you want me to say about he's uh, been in prison since the last time and while he was in prison his brother was um, uh, sleeping with his, his, his wife and now they're going to fight that was an actual Jerry Springer show that I watched <laughs> they um, also but, had on multiple times the leader of the brat, the guys who split from the mainline Ku Klux Klan because their leader was like we shouldn't say the n-word in public anymore and they had the guy. They he would was only have the guy who would say the n word. <laughs> never the guy who wouldn't say the n word was allowed on the Jerry Springer show. Well, I was, I was more thinking about like reality television, having nervous breakdowns and yeah. killing themselves. And yes, and so forth. Um, all the suicides on Love Island, but that doesn't get cancelled for some reason. Um, etc. etc. Like, like. Beale is like he needs help, but this is good television. I but it's it's God, I don't know. It's sad. No, it's it, sad. it is, and again, it it feels very prescient. Like the whole thing about like is reality TV just exploitation? Like that thing. Well, yeah. Think, yeah, the idea that yeah, you're taking these people and you're you're sensationalizing them, you're turning them into as a as Max says, a carnival freak is what you're turning him into, a modern day freak show. Uh, and the idea that you're kind of gawking rather than helping this man who has clearly had a, a breakdown. And like, 
again, part of me wonders if this is if this is something that is from network or if it's just something that we're used for something else. But that moment where he describes, he says, I didn't have a nervous breakdown. I had a moment of Chris of clarity. And like, that's a line that I hear in virtually every TV show where a character is defending, like having a nervous breakdown. And I'm well, wondering, is this it the feels. first example? Yeah. That's how it feels if you're having a psychotic episode. You're trying to actually like explain to everybody. It's like, Jesus, like you need to understand like that. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking on a higher uh, level and that, that I feel like I've been freed from my delusions and, and that I'm, I'm finally becoming my authentic truth telling self and everybody's treating me like I'm crazy. And I just want you to, to, to kind of listen or at least like, let me say what I, or let me kind of do how I want to do. Even if he is having a profound religious experience, um, the the TV people don't care. Yeah, well, <laughs> like so, it's it's not they don't think he's having a profound religious experience. I don't know. Diane seems pretty convinced when she suggests the possibility. No, she doesn't. <laughs> Be- behaviorally speaking, there isn't really um, what uh, a like a distinction between um, like a profound religious experience and a psychotic episode did did the difference is the metaphysical difference over whether there is a god um that is like kind of speaking communicating to him or, through him yeah that's whether... why Kierkegaard says if you commit something under direct divine order you just have to live with the fact that you're probably going to get punished for the consequence you're probably going to get punished by the law but you do the moral thing and you just deal with the fact that uh probably doesn't actually align with um with social values at the time yeah Right. In terms of just very quickly in terms of the television stuff, because I find this kind of vaguely interesting, is the idea that like the irony that we live in a world where, say, network, network for all that network hates TV, for all that network despises TV, for all that network is resentful of TV as this vast, monstrous wasteland, which is full of exploitation. And as Kira said, particularly subject to the whims of the marketplace. I find it interesting that arguably you'd be more likely to see Network as a six-part television series today than you would to see it as a major studio production. I feel like, like that, actually. Like, that, like, I look at it and it reminds me of something like Succession with its whole kind yeah. of, like, boardroom aesthetic. The idea that all this stuff takes place in boring, sterile skyscrapers and all these characters are, like, talking about how awful they are and the repercussions. But the movie feels claustrophobic. And, like, that sequence where they're having salad up on, like, the 89th floor looking out over the city, that feels very succession and the idea that yeah that, that 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 sort of stuff doesn't really happen in mainstream cinema anymore like in, in kind of like major studio production i think i i would disagree with the the kind of all like i not completely but i would disagree to some extent because i think that this exists in a kind of a heightened um world as, and, and what i mean is like visually as in that they, they, as 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 it goes on, like the set um, starts to change where it gets very kind of... Um, Religious themed. Yeah. Like, where you have and, like the stained glass window and more elaborate. And, and more, yeah. you, you, you also have the executive office yeah. changes where it becomes this kind of like red sort of like light and kind of where it feels all very sort of like cyberpunk or something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Or... Wait, maybe Demonic. not cyberpunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is something kind of like, uh, but also kind of futuristic about it. Yeah. But yeah, so so Dean and Kira, like, is there is there an irony there? Like, do, could this would this be a major feature film today? Would this be a HBO miniseries? 
I mean, it's hard to imagine it um, anything. <laughs> I think uh, how I put it is earlier I, I said that if anything, network feels quaint on rewatch compared to present day. And that's because I feel like in network, they're imagining like a nightmare scenario where somebody receives their news from a major television program on which somebody is constantly babbling, the main person is constantly babbling on about spiritual woo and, 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 and nonsense. They have psychics on, they have uh, uh, the Matahariyans with their skeletons of closet. I interpret that as essentially celebrity gossip. They have a pundit on <laughs> and they have a hearing from the audience. And I'm like, that feels quaint because that's like the Oprah Winfrey show. That's <laughs> like, that's a 90s talk show where the host becomes these kind of like, not just a presenter, but a thought leader. <laughs> and like, they're like bringing on all these wackadoos. And it's like, no, we're living like 30 years after that started. <laughs> so this all feels like, oh, a corporation actually being in charge of this stuff instead of it just happening at completely random chaos now, like where some some guy on a forum is like one of the most important like broadcasters <laughs> in the world, essentially, from posting. Like, when you called Network uh, Naive earlier, I was like, oh, no, like so much more like optimistic. The show <laughs> loses its ratings as it goes on. Yeah. Tur- turns out we, we will not experience that problem as we are fed the numbing trash of, uh, of, of TV now. Well, I want to ask, actually, because you, you mentioned it's a conspiratorial movie. Would you care mm. to, to elaborate on that, actually? Because that's just an, an adjective that kind of jumped out at me. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, I think it goes to, like... I mean, luckily for me, I guess, I've been listening to Them, Adventures of Extremists by John Ronson for the past several days, which is in part about his search for the Bilderberg Group, this shadowy group of financiers and businessmen, industrialists and politicians who meet at a hotel once a year to informally network. And... I mean, that's the kind of system of power that Ned Beatty is glorifying in his big epic speech. That's the, like, interconnected, interwoven, just, like, networks of capital that transcend nations and, and everything. That's why um, the movie's called Network. <laughs> yes. And, and even in the, like, in the book, John Ronson gets his hands on the, like, head of the Bilderberg Group Steering Committee, and the guy's like... Saying that we're trying to build a one-world government is an exaggeration, but it's not entirely without truth. Like that's that's how he he see, that's how the guy running who comes to the meetings sees it. There are these like vast, um, powerful interests in a wet network going across the world. Um, the thing is that they we assume that because there's secrecy, that there must be something extra evil about what's going on and it's like no they just don't want us looking at them while they do the evil it's 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 the regular evil that's just going on all the time there's no satanic baby rituals and all this stuff there's definitely orgies though oh 100 percent. that i mean the owl statues yeah the owl statues are weird right yeah like bohemian grove is just like a a frat party that's got the worst but like too big a budget like it's It's Boomer I'm, Coachella in the worst way. It's, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to. Um, I'm looking forward to when people are no longer scandalized by cocaine orgies. It's like, can we just get over? Like, um, like and the Andrew's like waiting for the culture to catch up with that. It's, exactly. It's like it's they're they're both kind of like just kind of things that normal people do. 
Um, All right. Like, 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 as in, it's not something that I do. But <laughs> like, it, it, the this idea that, like, um, you know, I don't know, you know, keep, keep, keep um, the, 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 be, these to... people are beyond the, the, the kind of like. I feel like no, I feel like course, a lot of, of the conspiracy theories more go along the lines of like ritualized satanic abuse and child abuse. Well, that's and, all true. And there, are, yeah, and well, okay, no, more like the human trafficking stuff is true, and all that sort of aspect of that is true. I feel like that's the element of that right. that people are reacting against. Rather than like it's like a, just a seventies party on steroids. Well, yeah, I feel like it's, it's it's things like you have the Maxwell verdict, the Epstein stuff. All this it's stuff. interesting because it makes it difficult. What a delightful to, conversation! It makes that. it difficult to think like what's true and what's not true. So people like see like the um, a Maxwell and um, Epstein and like. Um, uh, Prince Andrew and they're like well if that's true I'm going to walk into Comet Ping Pong you know with a with a, with a, yeah, with a, so with a gun and ask yeah. to see the children in cages yeah, that's and, it yeah, that, that's yeah. it that's it's it. the it's like when I think of Network as a conspiratorial movie I think of it as being very like representative of like the kind of conspiratorial paranoid attitude of the 70s also but also like prescient in the way that like in the long term people will um be extremely aware that things are really messed up and they don't really know why they are this way. And it's not because that, like, there's a big secret plan. It's just because the people we know are doing the bad things do it in private. Um, But in their privacy, they are creating a space for us to imagine them doing other things or to imagine other people in that room. Like, it's the, the lack of transparency is what, like, allows us to fill in that that gap with a fantasy of, like lizard people controlling the world or whatever that it is it is oh that one's true though (laughs) (laughs) that one's true um can can i ask oh sorry (laughs) it's it's not it's not true thanks kira (laughs) that's what i was gonna ask at the Um, at the build a bear um uh, <laughs> conference they have a purple portal where a manticore walks through okay, <laughs> okay. okay. you need okay. to keep putting hearts in those bears and, and does the manticore have several kegs because it says i'm here to park day <laughs> he um, but okay but they don't want you to know okay okay my my question was gonna be the the part of this that i do find like again i mentioned parts of it seeming naive the part of it that i find like really soul destroyingly depressing and I guess kind of like as we get towards the end, it is the end of the movie as well. It's just before the assassination. But it's the bit where like Beale works through what are basically like the five stages of grief in terms of like dealing with the state of modern society. And like you have like the righteous anger and the I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. And that's the big moment that everybody kind of gloms on to from the movie. It's become the catchphrase. It's kind of circulate. I mean, like again, Chayesky talked about how Gottfried would kind of like hand him like little clippings of press coverage that just used lines from the movie without even citing it to illustrate how important and influential it was. But it's the bit at the end after you've had that scene Dab-da. with Jensen. Right? What? De- denial, anger, um, uh, bargaining, yeah. um, despair, but it's, acceptance. It's acceptance. Yeah. Oh, d- depression, yeah. But yeah. it's it's the bit at the end where after he's had the conversation with, with Jensen where he just kind of says, look, you all got very angry. And you sent lots of letters and some stuff happened and that's great. (laughs) But I also need you to understand that nothing you do is going to make any difference whatsoever to this. We now know all this stuff. I've I've told you all this stuff, but it's still going to happen anyway. And I do wonder if there's an element of that in modern modern pop culture where like that thing that 
I think Kira and Dean and Andrew all mentioned about like corporations accepting and owning their evilness where there's an element of, well, what are you going to do about it? Ethical consumption under capitalism. It's like, you just have to accept that things are this bad. I don't, like, I, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I like, like I say, for, for example, the whole sports washing thing um, these days, I think is having like, it's, it, it's this Streisand effect almost kind of like, or it's like that where they're like, um, in order to take attention away from our uh, human rights abuses, Let's buy like Newcastle uh, Football Club or let, let's sponsor a new um, uh, 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 golf tournament or um, let's or... get the Undertaker over here right now. <laughs> exactly. He's an extremely old man. But they, this thing that's designed to uh, make people think of Saudi Arabia not, not, not as this place that's guilty of all of these um, uh, human, human rights, rights abuses actually draws attention to their human rights abuses where we had all where people would have forgotten but, eventually but people but I, I like i mean part of me does wonder if this is me being just cynical or excessively cynical where like i mean there is wonderful activism that happens a lot of this attention does move the dial in significant ways but you look at things like people looking at like the black lives matter protests and people in the community saying what was accomplished was not nearly enough off the end of that and you have this idea of you know corporatizing that or like things like you know corporations doing black lives matter or appropriating black lives matter or you know doing pride month and stuff like that while you know warner brothers doing pride month and then turning around at the end and saying oh by the way pride month was over yesterday uh jk rowling is very important to our brand uh her values are very important to us um <laughs> but like things like people just i don't know like the sense of like everybody i think now more than ever because of social media because of the internet is aware Ju- that July these corporations what? <laughs> <laughs> at Warner Brothers. Yeah. They just take down all the rainbow flags and just put up like JK Rowling flags. But like I I do like people are more aware of the evilness of corporations now, I think, than they were even ten or fifteen years ago because of social network and all that sort of stuff. Because of, you know, news and internet coverage, because they're getting news from alternate sources. But like I do wonder, is there an element of like despair fatigue, like where people point in and you end up like that Howard Beale moment where he just sits down on the stage and it's kind of like nothing matters. Well, there, there, there's an argument, especially now that um, because of Twitter, um, people don't have the bandwidth to care about so much different things, yet they're exposed to it. Yeah. So they're like, oh, I, I, I don't like that any of this is happening, but it, rather, rather than kind of um, having kind of a a smaller bandwidth where they live in a community and they can see the kind of like the things that are happening and do something about them, um, they feel maybe um, yeah, this rem- larger rem- problem. From it. Having said that, like the 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 way um, we live in a in a kind of an in a in a network means that like you know money can go from. Yeah. <laughs> smooth Andrew, smooth. But that it can go from 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 you know here to like Ukraine or 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 that it can it um help support a cause in in a um in a country that it's that that's not our own um protecting the rights of a race that isn't our own um etc. Um. So like like I th- I think it it cuts both ways and I think the the honestly I think the the we we focus on the kind of the uh, drawbacks 
I guess of 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 this, but the, the, um, which which you're right. I am Max. I am shaking my fist at the sky, saying, <laughs> you know, what but happened? I, to- I I I I am maybe kind of optimistic enough to think that there is some sort of um, uh, utop like um, utopia that's the um, that's possible without going uh backwards because actually people forget that the past wasn't so great <laughs> you know yeah, yeah that, so- and and that and that progress is the is the um is the problem whether, whether it's like technological or economic or or any of these sorts of things right um okay is there anything kira and dean want to talk about the movie that we haven't discussed or anything jumping out of you guys anything that you have in your notes that you want to shout out or reference or discuss i wanted to say that it's a surprisingly big influence on cannibal holocaust (laughs) expand on that so have you seen cannibal holocaust i have not i have avoided it what is cannibal holocaust okay yes (laughs) um it is a Italian film that was banned in the UK and it uh the famous thing about it is that the director was brought up on murder charges uh for murdering the actors uh which uh, of course he was found innocent when they all showed up alive um, and <laughs> fine and were like it was a movie was um, this a video nasty yeah 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 and uh but the thing is, is half, like, half the film takes place in a a TV, like, station. Because they're talking about whether or not to broadcast this footage. And <laughs> uh, this footage of uh, these, quote-unquote, journalists in South America uh, terrorizing Native people uh, to make it look like the Native people are all you know cannibals who are going to cause a holocaust yeah yeah exactly and uh and they're in quote-unquote new york everyone's italian obviously and uh and they're having this like ethical debate about about airing this footage and the tv people are like it's good tv (laughs) (laughs) so i was like oh that's cool (laughs) all right um Dean, anything else you want to talk about? Anything that's jumping out at you that we haven't discussed already? Uh, briefly, wanted to shout out the late Conchata Farrell, who plays Berta on Two and a Half Men, who had a small role in this as Barbara. Uh, <laughs> Faye, oh, Faye yes. yes. Um, great actress. We Unfortunately, she's mainly known for such a bad show. Um, and the other thing was, I was thinking more about this like love letter versus hate letter debate. And uh, the first thing was that um, the extent to which it is a hate letter reminds me a lot of um, Brass Eye and how that that show feels like the product of somebody who has obsessively hated in excruciating detail the kind of thing it's about for a really long time. (laughs) I think that uh, that comes through from Chayefsky and that maybe like the love letter is like, of course, Lumet is also a guy who started out in TV then breaks out as a filmmaker. They're, he's the one who's sentimental about TV, saying, I didn't leave TV. TV left me. And even like in this scene, the big final scene of William Holden, is like William Holden is performing like somebody in a 50s or 60s movie would have performed that. And then <laughs> Dunaway's like, 
responding like as a 70s actor with these like and it there's it has what i would basically just call like huge the old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born now is the time of monsters vibes um overall i mean yeah well i mean it, it, it it's very interesting that you go with william holden who was like the young monster in like uh was it sunset boulevard like he was the young up-and-coming kind of monstrous figure of hollywood's future there and he ends up becoming like the kind the old man being left behind here almost uh but then you have as you point out you have obviously faye dunaway who's best known you know, obviously she, she did chinatown but she also did like um bonnie and clyde which is like the movie that started new hollywood you have um obviously robert duval of the godfather and of course martin scorsese's the conversation um (laughs) but you have have like these um but you have these actors who as you point out are new hollywood so you have this kind of conversation between old and new you're actually going to get comments on twitter (laughs) (laughs) you didn't listen to the conversation (laughs) yes i know it was francis ford coppola (laughs) slash walter merch i do love by the way that like the two episodes that we've had the two of you guys on talk about are like the anti-auteur 70s movies where like the conversation is basically arguably the work of the sound designer and editor and is a movie about a sound designer and editor walter merch even though it's a francis ford coppola movie and this is although directed by Sidney lomet it's by patty chayofsky patty chayofsky uh which is you know kind of an interesting title to give there all right so is there anything else you want to talk about and we haven't discussed already jumping out at anybody with regards to it i liked the uh just like archie bunker (laughs) 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 you know that guy we hate <laughs> like, like that's yeah. Um, and apparently, like it, he joked about, like the actor who who kind of played the role of like the great Khan, who's Arthur uh, Bergard. Um, he talked about how he got the role by like storming into the audition holding two toy machine guns, and he was like, <laughs> "Yep, that this is what I feel that they want from me for this role." And he kind of said that like during that scene, they ran out of chicken, they ran out of fried chicken. It was his idea to eat KFC, so he only ordered one bucket of KFC. But they did so many takes that he said, okay, fine, I'll just chew paper uh, as we get towards the end of the scene. Um, Poor man. Poor poor man. Great performance, though. Really, really great performance. All right, then. Uh, Andrew, is there anything else you you want to discuss? Nothing uh, occurring to me at this moment in time. Um, In terms of the the Faye Dunaway, the last scene shot in the movie was the sex scene. Apparently, uh, William Holden was the big problem there. He, He disliked shooting sex scenes. Um, and apparently Faye Dunaway was very adamant that they shoot the scene to be respectful of her and she would have control over the final edit and that she didn't want to be objectified um, when she was shot. According to Lamette, when they showed her the edit of the scene, she was like, you could have maybe looked sexier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was her big note after watching the scene. Like, Can we have more male gaze, please? <laughs> But also not too much. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. All right. So anyway. All right. So that about then wraps up. So what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something, something they're enjoying. Uh, it could be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that is bringing you joy in this network-esque world in which we find ourselves. So to give Kira and Dean a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. By the way, I feel like before we talk about this, we should acknowledge that before we started recording, Andrew took a nap on my couch um, and waited for inspiration. After watching the movie. After watching the movie and waited for inspiration to come to him, not to talk about the movie, but for what he would recommend at the end of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. So I'm very excited about this. And it's funny because I said to Darren, it's like, I'm going to wake up and it's going to come to me. Because that's what happens when you ask yourself a question. Like, it's, um, you know, if, if um, what, what what did Confucius say? If, if you... 
if if you go to sleep with a stiff problem you'll wake up with the solution um sorry um they, they um no it it, it wasn't that it 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 made me think of night and day which is interesting because night and day it's a tom stoppard um play about um journalism um and it starts with a character waking up uh from 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 a, from, from a nightmare um and um i d- i don't think it's um like if uh, i don't think it's s tier uh tom stoppard <laughs> but i but i think it's in it it's enjoyable it's it is a bit um it is um there's certainly a very right wing reading of it but i think it comes from um a uh, kind of a a belief in the sanctity of uh, journalism as uh. this kind of like um important kind of um uh, institution that needs to be main uh, Kira was not rooting for all the president's men at the Oscars in 1977 I can gather from that No I was I was only joking Okay, well, sure. no, like, I thought, like, I thought it'd be funny if I booed. Un- unfortunately, all the president's men is great. It's got some of the most exciting phone calls in movie history. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, like even for people who have, who who um like um uh, Stoppard, like politically, um he was quite kind of uh, right wing in some ways in the kind of seventies and uh, and and the eighties. So you have to kind of contend with that when when reading it, but not really too much. I think you can probably read it without. Um, Luckily, we never have to do that on this podcast. No, I mean, we never had Kira on talking about a movie directed by Frank Capra or something like that, <laughs> that would present such a problem. But no, it's it's um it's about it's about um kind of a a couple of um, journalists and a and a photographer photojournalist, um in a kind of a fictional African country, um who are trying to kind of get the um, uh, scoop. And um, there's also that kind of breezy 70s infidelity in it as well, <laughs> which I, 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 I think the, the, the I, I believe it was kind of Diana Rigg and then Maggie Smith, I think, who, who, who played the, um, I'm, I'm, I want to say Rosie, but I can't think of um, the, 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 the name. It's been, a, it's been maybe a month since I read it. But um, she said that she kind of loved that 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 role, which may, it maybe speaks to the paucity of of female roles in the seventies more than kind of like it's standing up today as <laughs> as as a kind of a fully a feminist text yeah fully yeah yeah where she's just very horny where in seventies <laughs> kind of parlance that's like kind of you know um uh there uh, she 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 is you know being a um. A full, um, fully formed, three dimensional character. Yeah, with their own uh, wants, <laughs> you know, um, where 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 they're not just uh, where they're not no longer a sexual object. They're also like a a, a sexual subject. Um, <laughs> yeah, but um, um, but it, it, but speaking of appropriating sixties counterculture <laughs> for cynical ends. But anyway, but yeah, the, the, that, that that was written around the same time as this, and um, so was Professional Foul. Which I'd recommend, um, uh, like wholeheartedly. Um, More like professional fare, then, eh? 
Yes. <laughs> so that 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 is very good, not, Darren. It's neither foul no. nor fa- oh, fine. Anyway, ugh. yeah, yeah, very good. <laughs> it's great. I love it. Um, but um, that is that's the other side of I think uh, uh, Bard's kind of um, uh, political thinking at the time, which is of um, working with dissidents, kind of in Czechoslovakia, and. Um, and Russia and trying to kind of like hold on to the idea of, um, you know, a, a truth as a as a philosophical, but also kind of like a real world thing. And it's 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 a it's set at a um, and it's 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 a it was a BBC um, wasn't it was a it was a teleplay it was on a BBC. I think it's available on YouTube. That's where I watched it. Um, but it's it's about a philosophy conference in Prague, where um, actually a young uh, uh, Stephen Rea is is oh. a is a Czech dissident in it, who's trying to bring back a a, a piece of writing that that he's done to to, uh, to the UK, and then there's the kind of Oxford Don who can't do it because it would be kind of impolite to these people who've who've well, invited him to this. How very uh, yeah and uh, yeah but <laughs> exactly and that and that it is. Um, it's uh it, you know it he would have to deceive like in order to 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 take this back and that that's because he's this oxford don of like morality that that it betrays kind of like uh several moral principles but it, it it's it's interesting because it's a, it's 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 a play uh, about moral philosophers about moral philosophy and it's um it, it, I, 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 I enjoyed it quite a lot. And it's also like like both are, are, are very funny, but it, I think especially professional fire is it's, it's quite good. So you'd say it's worth checking out. <laughs> hey, um, I'm also reading a Ronald Reagan thing, which 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 uh, a biography, which which I thought which is about where the General Electric thing came from, was it? Kind of what, sorry, which where the General Electric yeah, thing yeah, came from. Yeah, yeah, but I I, th- I think I knew that about Ra- Reagan before, but it kind of reminded me of it. But um, I can't really recommend that because I haven't finished it. It's also kind of like um, uh, very kind of like fair handed in terms of like if you were the kind of person who who would be taken in by all of that Reagan shite, like you you you, you would probably um, not see any of the um, kind of um, inherent criticisms in it, where it 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 really does demonstrate that he's one of those kind of uh, useful idiots where he he, believe, he like believes the last person he's spoken to and can be kind of <laughs> fed, fed all sorts of ideas like it, it, um, like joe rogan yeah yeah i i I, 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 <laughs> I i think so like yeah it's it it's um i don't try I, I was i was subverting the joe joe rogan is interesting because he's like wow wow really <laughs> what'd you say dean <laughs> donald trump uh, yes <laughs> i i i appreciate it <laughs> sorry Andy. no but they, they, they um yeah um i'd i'd recommend those things i think i think somebody as well um mentioned uh broadcast news which is great yeah um and again it it is great. I mean, again, it's it's arguable that like none of the the kind of wave of movies criticizing television after this were quite as brutal or vicious or bloodthirsty. Like broadcast news, I love broadcast news, but it is a much gentler movie, I think, than this is uh, in many ways. But anyway, so Dean, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Speaking of a much gentler film, 
being critical of TV. I recently nice. watched Quiz Show, which is uh, the oh, true story of the investigation into the fact that basically when game shows first came along, they were all like, like super rigged and specifically involves around the investigation into a show called 21 that has a habit of uh, letting a, a Jew win for a few weeks and really get going and then have him lose to a Gentile who goes on to win more every time. <laughs> Starring John Turturro, Ray Fiennes, and a bunch of your favorite actors. And it's so, like, it's so much softer on television than network that to an extent, the best way to sum it up is when one character says, I thought we were going to take down television, but television's going to take us down. Um, That's a searing critique. But it's really good. It's really funny. Um... John Turturro is, is fantastic, especially. Um, the other two things I want to recommend are not related to the movie. They're both superhero things, because I'm leaning really hard into superheroes this year. And one is a, a Netflix miniseries called The Guardians of Justice. That Interesting. Almost certainly be disliked by anybody hearing this, but if you <laughs> are one of the people to whom it appeals... It is the most one of the most absolutely off the wall things I've ever seen. It's this live action hybrid parody of the DC universe that does for like with the what Watchmen did with the Charlton Comics characters that it ripped off. This is doing with the DC universe, and it's about like it seems like Superman commits suicide basically, but then what if it was a murder? And Diamond Dallas Page, the professional wrestler, is their Batman, and. It's when I say it's live action animation, it's like fifteen different kinds of animation. It's like the weirdest adult swim show you've ever seen on MDMA. It, it's like it, it does look like it was made in a budget of about a hundred dollars, I think. Like which is it was, to it looks its... like it was made a, like the man hours that must have gone into this yes. relative to the how expensive it looks. Yes. Uh, is like astonishing. Like the all the different kinds of cheap tacky old animation that they that they use. Um, it's great. I, 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 if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're very like me, <laughs> and uh, the other is I reread a, a book called Soon I Will Be Invincible. It's a rare example of a superhero novel. It was very formative for me, and I came back to it recently. It tells a story about. I mean, it's it's another story of like a knockoff of the Justice League. I'm not going to lie to you, but it's. What car- it, it, this is from the supervillain's perspective, isn't it, if I remember correctly? It ha- tells half from the supervillain's perspective and half from the perspective of a new hero. So one that's a cyborg called Fatal and an old school villain called Doctor Impossible. And it's uh, really good. It's really funny. It's very... There's a kind of late 90s, early 90s moment when a lot of comics are very self-aware and kind of but more reconstruction than deconstruction. They're like just taking the tropes seriously. Like a lot of the time, Fatal is just complaining about how much her body hurts from being a cyborg. But then it's also doing all completely taking seriously like characters being fairies from other dimensions and, you know, whatever weird nonsense. And it's uh, it's really good. And if you are like... <sighs> God damn it, even though the whole of the entertainment industry has been shoving superhero crap down my throat for the last, like, 20 years now, I still have a hunger for more. And I want something that's not DC or Marvel. Check out The Guardians of Justice, and soon I will be invincible. 
Alright, cool. Amazing. And Kira, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I'd like to recommend uh, another uh, Patty Jasky joint. The 1955 Best Picture and Palm d'Or winner, Marty. Starring Ernest Borgnine and Betsy Blair. I believe Chesky said that he wanted to write the most ordinary love story of all time. Just two unadulterated normies falling in love. <laughs> and uh, it rules. It's the best. Five stars. And unrelatedly, I would like to recommend Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, which I've been thinking about constantly since I've seen it. And I'd also like to recommend the uh, the classic sitcom Taxi, starring everyone who is good. It's the best. Uh, thumbs up. Um, also, Taxi Blues, a Russian movie from the early 90s about two guys who, if I try to describe their relationship, will be here all night. And, <laughs> uh, and of course, the final part of the trilogy, Taxi Driver. <laughs> all I part of a set like all on a spectrum sign on to say the Elvis movie rules and a lot of people seem to have had a oh my god movies are back moment about Top Gun Maverick I've not seen Top Gun Maverick my oh my god movies are back moment was seeing Elvis and I would strongly recommend people say it I kind of so. want to see it now I think I kind of I think I made fun of it a little bit because of just listening to the, the... a little bit you made fun yeah. of it a little bit. You, you <laughs> asked the question, is Tom Hanks bad now? Yeah. That was a question you threw open to the group in a podcast that had... I did say... That I, had, it's Tom, Tom, Tom Hanks should win. I did it. say it, I the haven't podcast seen the movie. Had, the podcast had nothing to do with... We were talking about the Princess Bride and Andrew threw out, is Tom Hanks bad now as a topic of conversation? Tom Hanks is so good in Elvis. It's like, it made me really excited about Tom Hanks again. I was like Tom it, Hanks. Is it left you hankering for more. This I was I I I I told someone that like if Tom Hanks is Henry Fonda, Elvis is his once upon a time in the West. Nice. I I want to see Elvis. I didn't get to see Elvis. They didn't have space at any of the multiple preview screenings they held, and I have not had time to do it yet. I'm yeah, also maybe being a little bit like, peakish about it. Um, I've kind of I've kind of went on a journey with that where I I think I was listening to Auntie Jess and Lick make fun of it, and it kind of chimed with how I felt, and then and then subsequently heard him say, "Actually, I've heard it's really good, <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to watching it." And I'm like. I am influenced. <laughs> the power of the. Not yeah. only does uh, Elvis explicitly reference superhero comics, like as like a key touchstone of the film, but uh, the thing it most reminded me of was the first season of Legion because it's about oh, this amazing. Well, horrible parasitic monster in a fat suit haunting this vulnerable, <laughs> beautiful young boy and just like trying to suck the life out of him. Slowly comes. So. Well, Dean, you you sold me on it. Um, no, I, I, it was on my to see list. He it's kind of fun. suspicious minds because he's caught in a trap. And and can and he, he get out? Walk out. Yeah, can he? But does he love it too much? <laughs> okay. Mm, jury, no jury, jury, jury. See what you're doing. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, all right. Uh, you won't believe the words I'm saying. Uh, Kira, Sorry. is there anything else you'd like to recommend? Because we seem to have gone down an Elvis Tom Hanks rabbit hole. Um, uh, no, that was everything. Right. I, I mean, El- Elvis is is the best movie ever made. <laughs> okay. 
I love that you said the best movie and there was a pause and we we're waiting for like of the of the year of the decade and then you just went whole hog. I I, I admire that. It's 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 just it's, the best movie. There's a bit where he wears a pink suit and he's got like smudged eyeliner and it's the best. Should like, it have I won the best picture even... Oscar in nineteen seventy seven? That's the question. <laughs> um, I'll I'll let I'll let all the presidents men have it. Who cares? Kira has just taken a marker to the like four hundred and three seed movie hierarchy that she's built. Speaking just... of of uh, uh, all the presidents men has a really weird uh, credit where it's a a Pacula Redford film. It's like a jewel <laughs> proprietary yeah. credit. Uh, even though Redford didn't write it, I'm presuming he just produced it and starred in it. Yeah, um, but you know, he was he was <laughs> R- Redford in the '70s was one of those producer auteurs, yeah. actor producer actor like Barbara Streisand before she started directing yes. films, or yes. Clint Eastwood before he started directing films. <laughs> yes, I mean this was the well, Robert Redford before he started directing films. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He directed Quiz Show, in fact, which yes. <laughs> prominently mentions Marty. This is all all right then in terms of recommendations for myself uh very very briefly uh in terms of uh movies about film and television that I really like I really liked I rewatched uh Jake Gyllenhaal's in Nightcrawler uh recently which I oh, quite liked and so is good. very much of a piece with this movie it is a bit more sensationalist a bit more kind of like trashy a bit more like evocative in terms of like its filmmaking and stuff like that but it, it is the same basic premise which is the idea of how terrible news is now and how we're degradating uh how sorry uh, how we're degrading uh journalism and the news coverage interesting thing about that movie is that like i i, I don't know if anybody did like i can't think of anybody not liking it or i, I feel like it seemed to kind of like a, a, a agree with like it it's it's so it feels so unanimous yet it probably wasn't the hit that it deserved to be well, it wasn't a major Oscar play or anything like that, if no. I remember correctly, and stuff like that. Um, Which is wild. There was a bit of a, the, the knock against it, now that because that's now a thing we do on this podcast. <laughs> the knock against it was that it was too didactic and heavy-handed. Um, in terms of other stuff I'd recommend, uh, yeah, I would recommend um, Succession. It, this reminded me a lot of Succession watching it. Same. Which is weird when you watch, like, 1970s movies and you're like, this is the blueprint for everything that has happened in pop culture since. It's like when you watch Annie Hall and you're like, oh yeah, this is every American independent movie between 1977 and 2017 for better and for worse unfortunately um but yeah this is massively influential in that and the boys oddly enough is a show that this reminded me a great deal of despite featuring less laser vision and decapitations than the boys does um but i, I quite enjoyed that the third season's ongoing at the moment and will have finished after we release this all right so dean and kira where can we find you online what you up to kira where you at what you up to I I uh, I co-host the podcast The Sunday Presents the, the Sunday Presents with <laughs> Dean. So and... the Sunday Presents the Sunday Presents. No, I, the... <laughs> let me start again. <laughs> I co-host the podcast The Sunday Presents with Dean, which you can listen to on the various places on the on whatever app you're on now, probably. Um, maybe who knows. Um, and you can read my writing on our website, thesunday.net. You can also read stuff I've written in Fangoria and Paste and Current Affairs and Crooked Marquee and various other internet places. And you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Kira Maloney. M- Maloney spelled with an O. 
Karis felt normal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and Dean, where can we find you? Watch up to. I also co-host the Sunday Presents podcast, and you can also read my writing on the Sunday.net website. <laughs> and not the whole thing, the list of credits, uh, but you can follow me on Twitter <laughs> at DNFBuckley. <laughs> Um, I, I, I promise that, uh, if you, if you love, if you, if you want to follow somebody who every time he watches a, a, a superhero TV show, he either hasn't seen in a while or has never seen before, that he's going to screen cap the hell out of that show and just post screen caps from that show with no context. If that's the kind of annoying, hyper fixated nerd content you want, follow me on Twitter. Absolutely. I, I I'm probably just going to be tweeting about Elvis. <laughs> Forever and ever and ever. Um, you are caught in a trap and you, you can't get out. You can't walk out. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, in terms of the 250, the podcast, we're, we're on uh, Twitter at, at the 250. We're on Stitcher on SoundCloud, wherever you listen to your podcast. We're guessing you know that already because you're listening to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what we're going to be doing next week because this is frantic, like straight farm to table podcasting that's happening right now. I do know what we are doing the week after next week, which is going to be, we are covering for Shark Week, all four Jaws movies on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, and the following Saturday, we're going to round up with Shack Week by taking a look at Steel, the 1997 25-year-old superhero movie that Dean has probably screen capping as I say this right now. Um, so yes, join- on my hard drive. I am hoping we'll be back next week with an episode. If we're not, we'll be back with Shark Week in two weeks. Uh, thank you so much, Dean. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Kira. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. That was thanks, fun. Thanks so much for having us. The extraordinary incident occurred in full view of his millions of viewers. The assassins were members of a terrorist group called the Ecumenical Liberation Army, two of whom were apprehended. The leader of the group, known as the Great Ahmed Khan,